When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. From time to time, people have asked me about the why we play this at the top of almost every hour, right? The beginning of every show, this Enter Sandman theme by Metallica. And a lot of people know that I'm a baseball fan. A lot of people think maybe uh, I stole that from Mariano Rivera. You know, Frank's coming in to close the show, mow him down. Maybe that's what this is all about. No. Uh, Some people say, well, we know you're not a Yankee fan. Maybe it's uh, when Billy Wagner was the closer for the Mets, and he used to come in with Enter Sandman briefly. And no, that's not it either. The truth is, that is one of the many things that I have stolen from one of the great radio artists of all time. And I am just thrilled, as he's done on a few occasions previously, that he's agreed to spend the hour with me and with you. I am very pleased to welcome veteran radio talk show host, a guy that has had the kind of success both in terms of ratings and revenue that most people who try to do this for a living can only dream of on local stations, on some of the biggest stations in the country in a nationally syndicated format and on the Internet. Now he's one of the most successful podcasters anywhere in the country. Gives me a great deal of of pleasure to welcome the one and only Tom Likas. Tom, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. So, uh, how is podcast life, uh, Tom? Uh, obviously, you spent so many years on the radio. You did radio, I think, uh, from an artist's perspective and from a business perspective, better than anybody. How are you liking the uh, world of podcasts? Well, you know, it's not that different from the world of broadcasting. The Obviously, the big difference is, uh, you know, in broadcasting, you are talking to everybody with a scan button. For me, I'm talking to the people who pay. So I have a much smaller audience, but I really don't care because I'm I'm doing the show for the people who pay for it. And you know what we'll do uh, throughout the course of the hour? If people have questions for Tom, they can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. It seems like every day there's someone, a, a different podcast coming out. Sometimes it's a celebrity with a podcast. Sometimes it's a, a podcast that studies the uh, mating habits of spotted lanternflies. Sometimes it's a podcast that can analyze uh, the every episode of uh, Ozark. It seems like there's a podcast for every interest. And there's a lot of bad stuff out there, but there's a lot of stuff that people really seem to enjoy. Do you see, uh, both from a, a, the potential of a business perspective and from a creative perspective, the same kind of energy in the podcast field now that you did when you were first starting out in radio? Nope. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's not like that at all. Uh, you know, the reality is that in New York City, when I was a kid, 
there were 30 radio stations, and the audience was divided up between those 30 radio stations. And that was it. And now the way the business works is anybody with a laptop and a condenser microphone is a broadcast. And so the result is that there's a lot of people making a dollar ninety-eight per episode. Unlike radio, where I made, you know, I made a seven-figure salary for a long time. I like that. the fact is that my my content is heard by the people who want to hear it and who pay for it. And so the idea of going on, you know, and then speaking of WABC, you know, I think of the days when uh, uh, Scott Muni and Dan Ingram sat at the offices of WABC at 1336th Avenue, and they shouted to a bunch of screaming 13-year-old females who were outside the Warwick Hotel one block away, and there was immense screaming and yelling, and everybody was very excited. Uh, uh, podcasting is not a mass appeal thing. It is uh, specific to the interest that people have, whether it's the interest in the host or the interest in the topic. And that's a lot smaller than just having a mass audience and talking to everybody with two legs. Tom, I'm, I'm going to put you on hold because we're having a hard time hearing you. Your, your phone's breaking up a little bit, and there's a, there's a lot of wisdom that I want to try and uh, glom from you. So I'm going to put you back on hold for for a second, and we're going to we're going to try and get you to a a better a better position. So uh, I'll leave that to uh, to you guys if you could try and figure that out now. Uh, if you're not familiar with Tom Likas, Tom Likas was a huge, huge talent in terrestrial radio as a nationally syndicated host. He was on a lot of great local stations, AM and FM, which is pretty rare, uh, stations in uh, Los Angeles, stations in Arizona, and, of course, got his start in the New York area where he grew up listening to great radio stations like this one and great radio talents like Bob Grant and uh, Barry Farber and Barry Gray and a number of others. So it's very interesting to me that Tom, um, see, his the station that he was on, was he was doing a syndicated show that was owned by CBS. That station, the parent company, the parent ship of his syndicated network, flipped formats. They did away with the talk format. And they kept paying Tom for a couple of years on the condition that he not be able to go to another radio station or go and do a podcast. Now, they waited out this time, and then he started doing something really creative and very different. He started doing a live radio show on the Internet, not a podcast, but a live radio show on the Internet, something that nobody had ever really done before successfully, at least not from a financial perspective. He found a way to make that program financially successful. And now, if you go to uh, premiumtom.com, he's sort of doing the same thing in the world of, uh, of podcasts. All right, uh, Tom, uh, we, uh, we got you back. Sorry about that. I'm glad. Yeah, uh, no problem. I'm glad we got you back. Now, um, so the, the, you, you think these niche podcasts, which maybe cater to an audience of uh, five, uh, 500 people or 1,000 instead of 10,000 or 100,000, that doesn't necessarily uh, float people's boat the same way that, uh, that Dan Ingram or Scott Muni back in the heyday of W.A. Beatles C might have? Well, as, as you know, and I'm sure you've heard the old air checks of this, 
the Beatles stayed at the Warwick Hotel on, what's that, 55th Street, and uh, WABC was at like 53rd and 6th Avenue, and uh, the WABC jocks, specifically Scott Muni and Dan Ingram, sat in the studio and uh, shouted, and all the girls were screaming from down on 6th Avenue. And that was, you know, that's how Mass Appeal was created, being able to talk to thousands and thousands of people. But the way it works now, whether you're streaming content, movies, or short-lived TV series or whatever, the way it works now is you pay to hear the episodes you care about, the personalities you care about. It's not given away for free to half a million or a million people as it has been for all time, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the people that it seems to be sort of a modern podcast rock star is Joe Rogan. It just came out last week that uh, Joe Rogan was uh, dethroned for the number one spot on Spotify by, of all people, Meghan Markle. Now, a few months ago, Meghan Markle comes out with this teaser promoting her new podcast. Here's a little right. bit of the uh, the teaser. You have the word skanky in America? That's we do of, have yeah. that word. I was waiting for you to smile at some of the compliments. You didn't. They are weaker, smaller. They are less intelligent. This is how we talk about women. The words that raise our girls. And how the media reflects women back to us. Stop following me! But where do these stereotypes come from? And how do they keep showing up and defining our lives? Now... Initially, there was audio from you in this Meghan Markle teaser, I guess, holding you up as the archetype of a misogynistic media commentator, and you were none too pleased with that. Well, simply because they use my voice without my permission. Look, if you want to do a podcast and charge people to listen to it, great. Uh, Pay all the people who appear on it. I appeared on it, and I was not compensated. That's a lawsuit waiting to happen. And so did they stop using your voice at that point? Uh, no, they just moved on to future episodes of the show, and it's still on there. Uh, but really, you, you get down to the point where is it worth filing a lawsuit against somebody uh, and the money you would spend on that? Uh, look, my voice was used without my permission. I deserved to be compensated, and I wasn't. And if I didn't have better things to do, I'd file a lawsuit. But I do, so I didn't. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, So, Meghan Markle, what does that say about the sensibilities of the American public and the podcast listener specifically, that she is now the most listened to podcast in the country? Or in the world, I guess. That's not true. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Frank. You know, I love you. I love you like life itself. (laughs) But that's not true. That's not true. Well, number one on Spotify. We don't know. Who's number two? Who's number three? Who's number four? Who's making these listings? Who's the numbers here? Where is that coming from? We don't know. And, uh, you know, the fact is there's podcasts in many places other than Spotify. So you're not the number one or number two based on the fact that you're on number one, number two on Spotify. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, Mark Marin has a podcast. Is he on Spotify? No. Is he counted in that list? No. I mean, who's number one, number two, number three? The answer is we really don't know for sure. Well, that's fair. Hey, the, Joe Rogan, obviously, who supposedly is now number two on Spotify, 
He uh, got into a whole firestorm over some of the content. By the way, I hate to interrupt. He Please. may be number two on Spotify. Who's number three? I, I, you got me. I don't, Nobody I, knows. You don't, don't and no they idea. don't, and no one does. But, but so he got into a little bit of a tiff with Spotify over what some of his previous content included. Sometimes it was stuff that was, uh, you know, that was kind of risque. Other times it was uh, things that had to do with uh, vaccine skepticism and things of that nature. I I mean, I'm sure he obviously made a lot of money by selling his podcast library to Spotify and producing it through them. But seeing what Joe Rogan went through, has that sort of solidified your business model, not partnering with a big company and doing this all on your own? Yes, because as you know, Joe Rogan has already been criticized for his content, had episodes removed from his library. You know, I can put on anything I want. It is to stay there forever, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Um, Joe Rogan doesn't have that. Now, Joe Rogan does have a nine-figure contract, according to the, the, the stories we've read. But what he doesn't have is the freedom to say anything he wants and, and post anything he wants in his library and leave it up there. And that I can do. And you know what? I've got enough money personally. I do not need the permission of Spotify, mm. Twitter, or anybody. Whatever I do goes up, and that's that. We're seeing – there was an article that you were featured in in Variety, and I thought it was actually pretty interesting. I don't know what you thought of it, but about all these radio talk show hosts who either were fired or retired and have chosen to make the transition to the world of podcasts. Is this something that you think um, is going to go well for the average former uh, terrestrial talk radio host? No. Why? No. No. It's not going to go well because the average – look – and, and you're not one of these guys I'm talking about, so let's start with that. Thank you. Just so you know, yeah. this is not about you, because you're not like the other ones. But the ones who are like that, um, you know, like like let's say you're the number one guy in Charlotte, North Carolina, talking about how much you love Donald Trump. Let's say you're that guy, because mm-hmm. uh, there is a guy. We don't know who it is. There's some guy like that. But the bottom line is that being on a 50,000-watt station uh, with no competition in a market like Charlotte, uh, it's not hard to be the number one guy. But once you leave the warmth, the tender embrace of having 50,000 watts and all of those listeners, and suddenly now you are trying to sell it person to person, I mean, really, who's going to pay to hear what they can get for free on the radio? Like, for example, um, you can turn on the radio any time of the day or night. You're going to hear somebody who believes in QAnon and believes in whatever. Um, you're going to get that on the radio on every any number of stations. But the minute you take it off the radio, you tell people, all right, this is $10 a month. There's a lot of people going to say, nope, not doing it. There are some podcasts like yours that people have to pay for. And if people want to check out your podcast, they go to premiumtom.com. There's others like sure. uh, like Joe Rogan and uh, and a number of others yeah. that have done well. Uh, yeah. I think Adam Carolla that are free and they have more of an advertiser-based model. Why did you choose to go the subscription route? I chose to go the subscription route because uh, I don't want anyone telling me what I can say. 
I don't want anyone telling me the words or the opinions I have to have. And that is what the business is full of right now. People willing to express the opinion that will sell advertising. And I won't do that. I won't go on and say the thing that the advertiser will love that will make them buy time on the show. Uh, I talk about what I want to talk about. I say what I believe. And I, I, put, I, I post the content in the library and elsewhere uh, that I believe in, and it's not coming down. And I have, never, I have never apologized for anything I've ever said and never will. And Joe Rogan already has mm. and does. Uh, Tom Likas, my guest for the hour. We'll take your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. In just a moment, we'll talk to Tom about financial aid forgiveness, specifically student, let for, uh, student debt forgiveness and this plan that has been put forward by Joe Biden, which a lot of uh, conservatives and even a lot of Democrats are taking issue with. Uh, Tom is uh, a self-made millionaire. And on his show, he would give a lot of financial advice, particularly on Monday, on uh, Mondays when they would do Money Mondays. We'll see what Tom thinks about uh, forgiving student debt. And we'll take some of your calls. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight, I'm Frank Morano. For the better part of the last 40 years, uh, whenever you would make the list of the most listened to non-conservative radio talk show hosts in the entire country, at or near the top of that list was uh, Tom Likas. Sometimes his politics are a little difficult to pin down. Is he a libertarian? Is he a liberal? Or is he something else? Uh, something else besides. That's why I'm very, very eager to get his take on the situation involving President Biden and uh, student debt. By the way, Tom, how do you characterize your politics, if at all? I'm a libertarian. And... and uh... And, and one of the things I've been thinking about and thinking about in advance of coming on a target to you, Frank, is the fact that, um, you know, I don't like the way things are right now for a particular reason. The particular reason is because I am not a liberal, not a left winger, and I never have been. But unfortunately, because of what's gone on the last six years, uh, I have had to choose a side. But the reality is that what's going on with the student loan debt, I am totally opposed to what Biden proposed and what Biden is going to do. I'm totally opposed to giving people uh, $10,000 credit or $20,000 credit on their student loan debt, simply because I went to college in New York City. I went to Fordham University in the Bronx. I went to Hunter College in Manhattan. I borrowed $25,000, which, by the way, in the 70s when I was attending, that was the maximum you could borrow for four years of college. I borrowed that money. I had to drop out after two years. 
and uh, I uh, I paid the debt. I had a twenty-five thousand dollars debt, and I paid it off a hundred percent. And now I'm seeing people with a quarter million dollars in debt getting money paid off from whatever it is they owe. That's not fair. Why should I, someone had to struggle through and make it without a college degree? Why should I have to pay for the college degrees of others? Yeah, I don't like it. Uh, Don't agree. Shelby Brendler, University of Minnesota student, was on uh, Fox 9 Minneapolis talking about student debt relief. This is what Having 10,000 canceled would be great. Um, I would love it if it would be more because I know I'm very lucky in that I only have 12,000. Um, I know a lot of people who have more. My roommate is a med student here, and so by the time they graduate, it'll be easily a quarter of a million. <laughs> so I would love if it was more, and I would love if it was um, more equally distributed between low-income people. Now, Tom, I, I certainly agree with you, but um, you know, my my wife, for instance, she and I are not struggling, right? We make a decent living. We're not wealthy by any stretch, but we're 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 having a fine time paying our bills. And uh, she is going to get forty five hundred dollars, maybe forty eight hundred dollars of student debt relief wiped, a uh, student uh, student loan debt wiped out. When we're not exactly the kind of people that I think the, the government should be bailing out. But uh, there are others that support what President Biden is doing that say, look, uh, the middle class and the uh, lower middle class, they didn't benefit from the Trump tax cuts. This is their opportunity to get a little something from the system. What, what do you say to those that say it's their turn to get a little something? Well, look. I don't agree with the idea of the PPP loans for anybody, no matter what the politics. And I do not agree with the idea that people are going to get bills paid. I do believe that if you tell people they're going to get ten or $20,000 paid off, the next group of people applying for assistance, uh, they're going to say, the hell with it. I'm not going to pay my debt because eventually right. someone's going to step in. Uh, some politicians going to step in and help me pay my debts, so I won't pay. I, I'm a very strict believer that if you borrow money, you sign a piece of paper, you put your signature on it, you agree that you're going to pay the, the, the whatever it is you borrowed, that you pay what you borrowed. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care where you come from. Everybody's going to pay. I paid, you pay. That's how I see it, and it has nothing to do with my politics. I believe that everybody who borrows money needs to pay it back, and they do not need the rest of us helping them pay it back. Plenty of ways to go to college. You go to community college. Uh, you can go to a trade school. You can do other things. But I do not believe that people should just be paid back for that. I don't. Uh, one other issue that's getting a lot of attention really all over the country, but especially in New York and California is how to deal with the the homeless. And in Los Angeles, where you are these days, there's a big debate about whether vacant hotels should house the homeless. Here's uh, Kurt Peterson, the co-president of Unite Here Local 11 on CNN, talking about homeless people in uh, L.A. hotels. We think this is one part of the solution. By no means do we think this solves the homelessness crisis. But do hotels have a role to play? Of 
course they do. We don't want to head backwards into the segregated South, but that's kind of the language that they're talking about. There's a certain class of people, less than humans, animals they almost describe as, to be honest with you. They don't seem to understand who the unhoused are. We're talking again about seniors, students, working people. That's who the voucher program would benefit the most. Now, that voucher program that he's talking about is a proposition that's going to be on the ballot in 2024, where L.A. residents are going to get to vote as to whether or not the more than 60,000 homeless that are currently in Los Angeles should get uh, to access the 20,000 vacant hotel rooms. How are you going to be voting on that question? No, I'm going to vote no. And here's why I'm going to vote no. Because if I were going to come to a city, any city, let's say New York, let's say they did this in New York and they said that the Plaza Hotel, if it has three vacant rooms, they're going to give it up to Section 8, uh, people with Section 8 vouchers. I do not want to be in the hallway with people shooting up drugs, with people with various kinds of issues. I don't, do not want to be in the hotel with them. And so I think the hotels are going to suffer in the end because the fact is you're going to be uh, told you have to stay in the room next door to somebody who is problematic. I don't want to be there. And if I'm the owner of the hotel, I don't want to be forced into that. By the way, I happen to believe that what is happening with the hotels next, that's going to happen with private residences. I, I own two houses. I own one house in Santa Barbara Wine Country, and I own one house in the Hollywood Hills. I'm mostly in Santa Barbara wine country. But you want to know something? Uh, my fear is that cities like Los Angeles will come to me and say, you have a four-story house in L.A. and you're not living in it. So you're going to have to let other people live in it until you come back. No. N-O-N-O. No. You, you know, one of the things uh, that I've always found so refreshing about you on the radio, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Tom Likas, you could hear him on his podcast at premiumtom.com, that's premiumtom.com, is that I really don't know what to expect on issue after issue from you. You're very much an independent in terms of your approach to the news. You don't see things through an, ideology, an ideological no. lens. Now, one no. of the things that I found boring about a lot of the bigger national nationally syndicated conservative talk shows these days is I know exactly what they're going to say. I know uh, I know every minute of every episode. And that leads me to a question that I get asked all the time at parties. I get asked it by listeners, which is why is the medium of talk radio so dominated by conservative voices? What's your answer to that question? Do you really, Frank, you know, I love you. I don't want to get you in trouble. Do you really want the answer to that question? Yes. Because I'll give it to you. Okay, because the management, mostly not the ownership, because the ownership is conglomerates, but not at your station. Okay, because mostly the people who run these radio stations, they want the hosts to express a certain opinion. That's what they want. They want that. Let me tell you a story that has nothing with WABC or you. But it has to do with me and a radio station where I worked 30 years ago, and this is still going on. I worked at a radio station, let's say, in Los Angeles. It was in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, we had uh, a room that most people that were, we call the lunch room. But at radio, it's called the jock lounge. There's a room where they have vending machines and a sink and a place where you can bring your bag lunch and sit in and eat lunch, and you come in, you eat there, you so 
alongside of the other personalities who work at the station. And uh, one day, the program director at the station where I was working in Los Angeles came in, and he said, I need someone to do a shift this weekend. Is anyone available? And there was one guy who used to hang out there all the time. He was not did not work for the station. He was a comedian who was a guest on any show that would have him as a guest. And, and he was always, he was hanging out at the station. I don't know how he got in or who let him in. He, somebody at the station let him come in. He was there all the time. And so when the program director came in and said, can anybody do this shift? He said, I'll do it. And the program director said to him, uh, but no, and not you, because I need someone who's a conservative. And the guy said, I can do right wing. Simple as that. Now, simple as that. And suddenly, poof, he's a conservative. Um, I wouldn't do that. I, I have my opinion. I have what I'm proud of, my point of view. And there's no way I would go in and pretend to be something I'm not in order to get on the air. Right. But he did it, and lots of people do it right now. Right now. Hey. There's a guy on a competing station to you, so it won't affect you. Mm-hmm. There's a guy right now who's on every day who um, he's a complete phony. He doesn't have any political opinions, doesn't care about politics, but he likes working, and he likes being on the air. And so he will say he is a supporter of Donald Trump, and he will say he is a conservative, but mostly so he can stay working, not because he believes this stuff. There's a lot of guys in radio who are doing just that. I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about, and I don't even think that person is even registered to vote. That's how little he cares about politics. By the way, Frank, I would bet, Dolly, would I bet that's true? But I would bet that he has no interest, even to this day, in politics mm-hmm. or news. He just likes working, and he has a great voice. He sounds good on the radio. So he will say, yes, that's me. But it isn't him, and it will never be him. And there's a lot of people on the radio right now who are complete frauds, phonies, who go on and say, I believe this or I believe that, and they don't believe it. Now, and we have a bunch of people that are queuing up to talk to you, and we'll get to the calls in a second, 800-848-9222. Someone like Bob Grant, who uh, I know you knew, uh, I knew him uh, pretty well before well, he died. He, Bob made no bones about that um, w- this was theater, that he viewed this as, as entertainment. Yeah. Now, to play devil's advocate... How is what um, John Q. Phoney does any different? Because John Q. Phoney is not entertaining Lucifer. <laughs> That's true. Bob Grant and I, my politics had nothing to do with Bob Grant's politics. But you want to know something? Not only was he, in my mind, one of the most wonderful people I've ever known, Bob Grant was... Uh, a performer. He was a performer. There's nothing wrong with being a performer, but that's what he was. He was not, um, he didn't belong to a political, he may have belonged to a political party. I don't know. But he was not, uh, he was not known for being a member of a political party. He wasn't. He was uh, like other people in radio. Long John, I'm going to name names, Long John Neville, Cherry Williams, Larry Glick, 
he was a performer, which, by the way, I revere. Anybody can go on and perform. Anybody can go on to get off my phone, you jerk. I love those guys. I don't care what their politics are. Bob Grant, a hardcore conservative on WABC, WOR, and other radio stations. Bob Grant was a great guy and a master of performance art. That's what he was. I spent time with Bob. Bob was from San Diego area, Fallbrook, California, to be specific. I spent a weekend with Bob, uh, with his uh, child and his grandchildren. He was spectacular. And you know what? He, it was not about politics for Bob. It was about performing. He was a performer, one of the great performers of all time. You know, some of my best friends, because people love to call me a liberal, here are some of my best drinking buddies of all time. Morton Downey Jr., Pat Buchanan, and others. These guys come off as hardcore conservatives, but you know what? Great people. Great people and not liars. They were just performers. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Joe, you're on with Tom Likas. Yeah, Tom, a couple of things about the podcast format. Uh, One would be it seems like Joe Rogan had Robert Malone on, and he was targeted, and they uh, went through, like, every one of his podcasts and deleted, like, about 100 of them, which seems pretty awful. But I'm wondering another aspect is I don't know how far that goes down the chain to less popular podcasters right. if they would target them. And then another thing would be uh, I do notice I've heard people on the radio for a long interviews, say coast to coast, and I've heard them on podcasts, and they much more or at least noticeably more let loose on the podcast as to what they really want to say. You know, that's another thing that's noticeable. So uh, what's your question, Joe, just about wh- why people say or do certain things on the in on podcasts versus on, on terrestrial radio? Well, well, it seems like they do let loose a little bit more. And then my last question would be, when, when, if you have 400 podcasts, is like podcast number 100 available for podcasters? I know some are up to episode 400. Do, do they... Uh, and how do you go all the way back to 100 without going play previously like 300 times? Can you do that? I don't understand the question. I mean, I'd love to answer it, but I don't understand it. Okay. Yeah, I will say, though, if you go to premiumtom.com, you could go back and listen to a lot of your archives, not only from the podcast you're doing now, Tom, right, but from your days when you were on the radio right. doing a lot of the no, segments. No, I've got podcasts going back years, over a decade. And, uh, you know, the, the fact is that when you do a podcast, you're generally not doing it for iHeartRadio or any big corporation. Even WABC is not a big corporation. It's a local company in New York City, and uh, you're not dealing with a big corporation. Now, if I were on, like, for example, iHeartRadio demanded that radio hosts who worked for them supported the Iraq war whether they support it or not. If you support, if you don't support it, you're off the air. That's how they did it. So many times now, when you hear a podcast that is not being produced by a big American company, most of the time uh, the deal is that, uh, uh, you know, they're going to tell you what to say, what to do, who to believe in, who not to believe in. 
Let me tell you something about WABC, uh, which is impressive. WABC, which for years owned by big companies like American Broadcast Company, Capital Cities. Uh, Cumulus, uh, Disney, Citadel. Cumulus, Citadel. But the point is, and, and I don't mean to make you blush here, Frank, but WABC is now a top 10 New York City radio station, which it hasn't been in 20 years. 20 years! Frank, you're so modest. I, I, this is I, I, an amazing. I, I think it's tremendous. I, I really am. May, uh, I, may, I, may I jump in here and say that I am, first of all, I worked at WABC in 1980. I am super impressed, super impressed to see that WABC today has higher ratings than it's had in 20 years. It, no, it's a great treat to be here, believe me. And uh, a lot of oh, folks. Hi. <laughs> I believe that. No, it's uh, I've worked for some of those companies that you just named, and it's night and right. day, the current climate versus the climate yes. at any of those other places. All right, uh, yeah. Larry, uh, Alan is in Rockaway. Alan, you're on with Tom Likas. Uh, hi, how you doing? You know, I wanted to comment on this business of whether it's a good or bad idea to uh, uh, reduce the college debt with these giveaways. And I keep hearing people say, well, um, I don't want to pay for them. I paid for myself. They're not paying for him. They're paying taxes according to law, federal taxes, and and whatever that number is, that's what they pay. And it's the government's uh, uh, decision what they want to spend the money on. So uh, no one is making a sacrifice to anybody about uh, uh, having these people get a debt reduction, you know. Uh, and if and just one last point, if if the uh, U.S. government didn't spend seventy four gazillion dollars uh, on defense, maybe they could uh, spend, you know pay pay for some of these colleges off. Uh, well, you're not going to get an argument from me on the defense front. I'll, I'll let Tom comment, but I would just add I, I don't know much about economics, but on the political end, I think one of the things that's frustrating to people is that Congress is not even voting on this. The president is just doing this on his own when this wasn't exactly what he promised during the during the campaign. But Tom, uh, what's your response to Alan's uh, comment there? Well, you know, look, let's let's face it. Uh, the fact is that the government is. Uh, always making promises, always saying we're going to do this, and then they end up doing that. Um, Look, I am not, even though people may want to believe, I am not uh, some liberal who thinks Joe Biden walks on water. I'm not that guy. Never was. Uh, And uh, I do believe that— Liberal is a dirty word over here. Well, it's not a matter of liberal being a a clean word or a dirty word— it's none of that. People um, have a right to be liberal, is, don't they? Yeah, no one's saying they don't. Alan, well, thanks. Uh, no, yeah. and in New York City, there's a lot of liberals. I get it. I get that. I grew up in New York City. I know. I rode the D train as a child. I'm well aware. I know. But I, I will say also that, look, the fact is that, um, you know, the, the politicians do what they have to do to get elected, and they do. They say what they have to say to get elected, and they say it. Uh, doesn't mean that they're right. Doesn't mean it's a good thing to say. But all I will say is that, uh, look, 
the fact is that uh, we have had uh, a government uh, that has been in turmoil for years uh, locally uh, in local places like New York City, uh, nationally like uh, the White House. We've had a lot of craziness out there. Um, the fact is that uh, uh, we are not uh, in a position where we have to worry about this stuff. Uh, we shouldn't be worrying about this stuff. We should be worried more about taking care of everybody, every political point of view, every perspective. We should not be sitting here and saying one side deserves help, one side doesn't deserve help. Everybody needs help. Everybody needs assistance. Everybody. Farmers need assistance. Individuals who go to community college get assistance. And how are we going to help everybody? I don't know yet. Uh, Tom, the other day we had on uh, Alex Bennett on the, on this program, and uh, he reminisced yes. a, a great deal about his time at WMCA and WPLJ, even a little bit of his time on the radio in the Bay Area. And in previous conversations, yes. we talked about his time on uh, Sirius Satellite Radio. Obviously, you were coming of age and a big radio listener when Alex was sort of in his prime here in New York. What's your take on Alex yes. Bennett as a radio personality? Alex Bennett was a great radio personality. Alex Bennett was the first person to expose talk radio to a young audience. I will be the first one to tell you that Alex Bennett uh, was important in that regard in New York City and elsewhere where he did that. So I, I was a big fan of Alex. Alex and I have had agreements and disagreements over the years personally, but I, I'm not going to lie. Alex Bennett was important in that he exposed talk radio to people under 50 and was good at it. Yeah, uh, try and find a, a lot of that under 50 audience now on the AM dial. I, I think it's uh, pretty rare. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with uh, Tom Likas in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, uh, joined by Tom Likas, who even though he started life as a New Yorker, these days identifies very much as a Dodger fan. Uh, someone else who made the shift from East Coast to West Coast and uh, uh, didn't change his Dodger affiliation is somebody that uh, we lost recently, the one and only Vince Scully. What a marvelous moment for baseball what a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. Uh, Tom Likas, as a broadcaster and as a Dodger fan, uh, what, what was your take on uh, Vince Scully as an announcer and as a, as a broadcast personality? Vince Scully... To put it bluntly, is the reason I left New York City and came to Los Angeles. He is the one and only reason. Vince Scully, uh, by the way, I have a lot of co in common with Vince Scully. I'm not saying I have the talent of Vince Scully. I don't. But uh, Vince Scully is from Washington Heights, which is where I've, I'm from, Washington Heights, Upper Manhattan. Vince Scully lived in the Bronx. 
I live in the Bronx on Sheridan Avenue across from Taft High School. Vin Scully was an amazing personality, an amazing talent, and uh, I wanted to be him. I'm not going to lie. I want to be him. And so I went to Fordham University like Vin Scully. I followed Vin Scully. Do you know in 1965, I was nine years old, and I was sitting on my grandmother's floor in her apartment off Fordham Road in the Bronx, and I heard Vin Scully for the first time when I was nine years old, and I said, that's it. That's what I want to be, Vin Scully. And I, I, I did that. I moved to Los Angeles. I went to Fordham University first. When I came to L.A., uh, I was uh, just a huge fan of his, listened to him every day, wanted to be him in every possible way. One of the great broadcasters, such an idol, uh, such a great guy to uh, to want to follow in the footsteps of, which I did. I I'll never be Vin Scully, uh, but I will say that uh, many things I did in my career had to do with Vin. Growing up in Washington Heights and moving to Los Angeles, and uh, I wanted to be that. For people that don't follow baseball, or for people that don't watch the Dodgers, or didn't watch the Dodgers, what was it that made Vin Scully so special as a broadcaster? Um, because he was the very, very, very best. The very best. And who's the very best at anything, really? I mm. mean, we've, in, in New York City, we had some amazing people to look up to in the broadcasting business. And I'm going to name some. Marty Glickman who for years was the primary play-by-play guy with the New York football giants. Marty Glickman, Red Barber, who was Vin Scully's, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he was Vin Scully's, uh, Vin Scully was his idol, uh, or he was Vin Scully's idol, Red Barber, who did both the Dod- Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Yankees. By the way, uh, I think people have forgotten about uh, Red Barber is that he got fired by the Yankees. Do you know he went on the air in 1965, the year the Yankees went from first place to last place? I was there. (laughs) I saw this. And uh, Red Barber, uh, who saw himself as a journalist, came on the air and said, hey, there's only 431 people at Yankee Stadium. He said to the director on camera, live, say, let's show this to the audience, how few people are here. And when he did that, he got fired. One of the great broadcasters, and certainly someone Vin Scully looked up to. Uh, Amazing. But I follow Vin Scully's career in every way, what the people he looked up to, what he did, what he didn't do, how he did it. He was incredible. And for people in Los Angeles, you know, for many years, Los Angeles didn't have any games on TV. Do you know that? Do you know that in L.A., at one time, they showed nine games a year wow. on no. TV? And do you know what the games were? They were the Dodgers playing the Giants in San Francisco. <laughs> and they did not show any other games. If you want to see the game, you had to pay to get in. I did not know that. I want to try and squeeze in as many calls as we can here in the next uh, few minutes of uh, having Tom Likas here. Peter in Manhattan, you're on with Tom Likas. 
Yeah, so Bob Grant was a very insecure person, very talented, but was limited by cultural stereotypes that he had to play to. My question to you, Tom, I heard you speak about entertain, uh, talk show hosts or entertainers, so therefore yeah. Yeah. I, as the public, should not consider anything you say or anyone of your ilk seriously. Is no, and, and by the way, you're absolutely right, and let me tell you why. We are here to entertain you. That's the number one thing we're here to do. That's what here Frank is here to do. Absolutely. That's what I am here to do is to entertain you. We so are, are you not saying wait are you saying that wait a minute, are you saying that people like Howard Stern that spread hate and vulgarity? Oh Howard are Stern entertaining? doesn't spread hate. Come on. Personally, I mean I, I, I mean that's absurd as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, uh, 800-848-9222. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Yes, I wanted to ask this one name that I thought you both of you would mention. And uh, even though I found him infuriating at times, I will say that at least during the first 10 years that he had a nationally syndicated radio show, I found him very funny, even when I was upset with him. I'm referring, of course, to Rush Limbaugh. And I'm interested in, in your, your thoughts. Tom, what's your take on Rush Limbaugh as a, as a radio talent? Rush Limbaugh was a close friend of mine for years. And then disappeared. He ghosted me. Um, but uh, the fact is that Rush Limbaugh was a talented, entertaining guy. However, uh, you know, the fact is that he started taking himself too seriously. Um, you know, what a lot, of, a lot of guys who do what we do, what Frank does, what I do, a lot of guys forget what we're here to do. We're here to attract ears. We're here to sell advertising. That's what we're here to do. And uh, that's what Rush Limbaugh was here to do. But unfortunately, Rush started taking his own um, image seriously. And people kept telling him much they loved, loved, loved him. And he was so fabulous. But the reality was, look, we are entertainers. Don't believe what we say in terms of news or facts. We are not here to give you facts. We are here to entertain. We are here to keep you listening. We're here to sell advertising. That's what we're here to do. I don't lie about it. I tell the truth. That's what Rush did. That's what I do. Let me say hello to Donovan in Canada. Hello, Donovan. Hi, Frank, and hi, Tom. Uh, I was a huge fan of your show back in the 90s, listened avidly in Seattle, and for the short time you were on in Vancouver um, until that ended. But the question i got to ask you, your show in the 90s was very edgy, was uh, against the line sometimes. People could say a little bit crass, but I saw it for what it was incredibly entertaining and intellectual at the same time. Considering the time we're in right now with cancel culture and everything, do you think radio will ever go back to a point in time where people could do what you did and get away with it? Or do we naturally have to see an evolution? Well, look, the bottom line is that uh, what we did was appropriate for the time we did it. I can't make it any clearer than that. We did what worked in the years we were doing a show. And uh, will radio do that again? Probably not. But there's other reasons, including the fact that 
I mean, WABC is an exception. It's an outlier. It's so successful. But really, around the country, these talk radio stations, maybe the lowest rated stations in their markets, WABC is huge. Huge. It's a top 10 radio station. Holy crap. That's amazing to me. And I grew up listening to WABC, okay? But I don't think in general we're going to see uh, those times anytime soon. At some point, maybe. But right now, no. We're not going to see those kinds of programs on the air. Thank you, Donovan. Um, Tom Likas here. We only have about a minute minute left here. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to get into another call. Those of you that we couldn't get to, we'll try and get to you uh, next time. Tom is on. Uh, if yeah. you want to check out Tom's podcast, go to premiumtom.com. That's premiumtom.com. Uh, Tom, what do you do? You do it uh, once a week, or, or are you still doing it multiple times a week? Three, time, three times. Three times. Three times. Three times a week. Sometimes twice, but mostly three times a week. I do uh, what the people want. I talk about things they write about. Tom, they uh, write to me. They think talk about this. Thank, thank you very much, my friend. We'll do it again soon. Keep asking questions. Frank, thank you. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. We've done a lot of segments on education on this show. I love doing segments on education. You know why? Because hearing all the perspectives from teachers, parents, former teachers, grandparents, administrators, principals, hearing all the perspectives on different educational problems, I learned. A great deal. And as someone that will soon have a son that's uh, school age, I'm really into learning about this kind of thing. When we've talked about why American schools in many places, not everywhere, but many places, are in the shape that that they're in, we've gotten a lot of examples as to what's the problem and we've gotten a lot of suggestions in terms of how to fix it. Some people have said that the problem is not enough discipline. Some people have said the problem is not a lot, uh, not enough parental involvement. Some people have said that the teachers have too much uh, power to indoctrinate students. Some people have said teachers don't have enough power uh, to uh, use free speech. Some people have said the problem are the books. Other people have said the problem is the violence. One thing we've never heard, at least I've never heard it on this show, When it comes to education, I've never heard anybody say we need to be hitting children in school more. Corporal punishment had been a way of life, not just in America, but around the world, in schools for many years. America was no exception. Corporal punishment, basically the practice of hitting a child, when they do something bad, had been in decline before the pandemic. Slow decline. You really didn't hear about it being used in a lot of different places. But it remains legal in 19 states. Did you know that? Mostly in the South, 19 states. This um, has a lot of researchers pulling their hair out. Some researchers say that it makes children more aggressive and more disruptive. But now... A school district in Missouri has announced that it is bringing back paddling. And this drew a great deal of attention a couple of days ago 
when this was announced, but corporal punishment with an interruption, perhaps for the coronavirus pandemic in some places, never went away in a large number of schools, legal in 19 states. And although the numbers have declined in the past decade, about 70,000 public school children were subjected to corporal punishment in the 2017-2018 school year, which is the most recent year for which we have data. Nearly 4,000 schools reported using corporal punishment during that school year. That brings us to Cassville, a small city in southwestern Missouri that has reinstated the practice of paddling. This is a practice that they abandoned back in 2001. To my knowledge, and I stand to be corrected on this, at 800-848-9222, to my knowledge, this is the first city the first school district that did away with with corporal punishment and is now bringing it back 20 years later. So this practice defined as paddling, spanking or other forms of physical discipline has not gotten a lot of attention over the last few years. Now it is because of what Cassville, Missouri is doing. Here's what's interesting. This is um, Dr. Merlin Johnson superintendent of the Cassville School District in Missouri, speaking to the NBC affiliate there. The suggestions that came out was concerns about student discipline, and so we uh, reacted uh, by implementing several different uh, strategies, corporal punishment being one of them. It's something that uh, we don't uh, anticipate using frequently. This is an opt-in only option for parents. So anyone who disagrees with uh, corporal punishment, uh, they simply do nothing by not opting in. So that's interesting. And that's something that I don't think got a great deal of coverage. Corporal punishment in Cassville is only going to be used with a parent's permission and only when all other alternative means of discipline have failed and then only in reasonable form and upon the recommendation of the principal. It was put in place in response, according to Merlin Johnson, who I just played you, It was put in place in response to requests from parents. Can you imagine? Parents are saying to the school children, to the school teachers and the principal, please spank my child. What's your opinion about this? Do you think this is something that other school districts should consider in the manner that Cassville is doing it, which is opt in? Parent doesn't do anything. That student will not be touched. But... If a parent opts in and the principal determines that there's been there's no other effective alternative means of punishment, then that student's going to be paddled. Is that something you'd want in your school district? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Before I give you my take, let me give you a little bit of the history here. The practice remains legal because of a United States Supreme Court decision that's more than 40 years old. Isn't it always the Supreme Court? You can always count on these guys, right? In 1977, the court ruled in Ingraham versus Wright that corporal punishment in public schools was constitutional, which meant that each state could make its own rules about physically disciplining students. So if one adult were to paddle another with a wooden board, it would be considered assault. That's Elizabeth Gershoff, a professor of uh, human development at the University of Texas at Austin. But 
when the teacher hits a smaller person who happens to be a child, these states and these schools are saying it's okay. It's showing we give children less protection against violence than we give adults. Now, my take is that this is not a good strategy. I don't think this is a good idea. I recognize that there are some kids that, I hate to put it this way, but there are some kids that could use a smack. There are. But I think if if you think that that's an appropriate method of discipline, that's something that should be administered at home, not by a taxpayer-funded employee. Sorry. And look, the research bears out the fact that this is not effective. Groups like the American Psychological Association, they have said that paddling can cause injury, trauma, and it's not effective at improving behavior. And they're saying it leads to the exact opposite of what you want. They say it leads to more aggressive and disruptive behavior. And um, critics have cited all sorts of other research that basically say the same thing. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think this is not the kind of trend that I'd love to see more school districts adopting. And if I lived in Cassville, I would not be opting in for this at all. Over the last five years, four states, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Tennessee, have banned schools from using corporal punishment against children with disabilities, although Oklahoma banned the practice only for students with severe disability. So I'd love to know if you're a student, excuse me, if you're a teacher that's about to take out a paddle and paddle a student that's misbehaving in the state of Oklahoma, and you have to determine, hmm, does this student have a disability or does he have a severe disability? If he has a severe disability, then I can't do it. But if he only has a disability, then let me go ahead and whack him like crazy. <laughs> to me, this strikes me as uh, not the kind of thing that we need to be doing to improve the state of, edu- state of education in this country. What do you think? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Tom in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom. Good morning, Frank. Uh, enjoy the show. When I was growing up in Catholic school in the, in the early 80s, I had a teacher. I had a couple of nuns that would smack you um, on the hands and so forth, smack you in the face, hit you in the back of the head. And I had one teacher, Mrs. DeFeo, or maybe I shouldn't mention his name. He was a candy guy. If you had candy, you got it whacked. So you had to give him candy. But he would hit you with a brass ruler, and that was inspection day. Your shoes were unshined. Your pants were not clean or pressed. You look like hell. And your fingernails the big thing. He would whack you in the hand with a brass ruler. And, man, let me tell you something. That hurt. I learned my lesson. I kept my nails clean. I got sick of getting hit. Well, uh, Tom, I've heard that from similar people, which is why I was curious uh, what people thought about this proposal. So it sounds like uh, you're on board with school districts allowing parents to opt in for corporal punishment. I believe in the opt-in thing. I, I think that's a, a very good point right there. Um in the South, I, 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 I lived in the South for about a year, and I noticed the people down there were a lot nicer than the people up here in New York City. Uh, they were more cordial. So um, I don't know. Maybe it was working down there. It, it, it's it's uh, a, a genre thing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, what we it, call uh, post-hoke ergo propter hoke. I'm not sure we can necessarily draw a correlation 
between corporal punishment and people being more polite down south. I, I don't know that we can. Well, I don't know that we can, but I don't know that we can. I um, Look, children in this country are facing literally a national emergency when it comes to mental health. We've seen alarming relates uh, – uh, 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 excuse me, can't speak tonight – alarming rates of depression, alarming rates of anxiety, alarming rates of drug use and drug overdoses. So we've got to do something. Is the something that's going to correct children's behavior corporal punishment? I don't think so. And I wouldn't opt in for my child. What I would prefer – if look, I don't. I can count on one hand the number of times that uh, my dad ever hit me, and and still have a finger or two to spare. Okay, it was very very rare. My wife's family, complete opposite. They, um, you know, their their father's attitude was, you should not spare the rod, right, or something to that effect, right. They they had the exact opposite, and you know what? A lot. There's nine of them. All of them, or most of them, are in very good places in their lives. They're normal, well-adjusted, for the most part, members of society that, who knows, maybe they benefited, maybe they're better people today because they were they were administered corporal punishment in the home. But my point is, it was in the home, right? I think if I were a parent that believed in this, right, as my wife's father was, if I were a parent that believed in this, what I'd prefer to have happen is rather than some teacher take a paddle and whack my son's backside, what I'd prefer to have happen is the teacher calls me and say, look, I want you to know your son was um, doing graffiti on a wall, right? Or your son was smoking marijuana. Or is is that even prohibited anymore? Probably not. Your son was doing something. Your son was uh, throwing spitballs at another student. And then let me make the determination about what kind of punishment beyond the academic that that deals with. I mean, obviously, if you're cheating on a test, I would think that the appropriate punishment there is getting a a failure. But if it's something that's behavioral that you think is corrected with uh, with a a smack on the backside, let me be the one to administer that. Not not a teacher. And I guess, look, this is an opt in system. So I guess that's what they could fall back on. But uh, my fear is that a lot of parents are going to opt in because they don't want to do the hard work of disciplining their children. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Rick is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Rick. Hey, boss. I'm pretty loose on the school thing, but I remember growing up, if our neighbors spanked us, and sent us home to my father, my father would spank us again. So having another adult discipline us was routinely acceptable because all adults should discipline children on a national scale. Well, yeah, I I think when we're talking school, it's a different ballgame for a variety of reasons. And I'll be honest, I... If I had a neighbor that saw, and, you know, our neighborhood's a pretty close-knit community. Everybody watches each other's kids and so forth. If I had a neighbor that saw my son being up to no good, I would not want him uh, touching my son at all. You know, let me be the one. Call me and explain to me what happened. 
and then I'll be the one that determines discipline. But what Cassville is doing here is they're saying, hey, parent, you want to opt in to have your child potentially be the recipient of corporal punishment? You can do that. They had it banned for 20 years. It's back. Would you want this in your school district? That's the question. Simple as that. Joe and Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, great show, like always. Um, I'm listening to you talk, and I agree with you 100%. Anybody wants to touch my kids, I could hold Kenneth. I'd be up to school to touch them. Uh, you know, me and my wife have never. If you have to go to that resort of hitting a child, it's almost as worse as hitting an animal, then you fail as a parent. You need to be able to talk to your children, watch your children, and verbally correct them. I mean, when you hit somebody, my dad was abused. His brothers, my dad was an alcoholic. My, his brother was a drug addict. And it all stemmed down from the way the parents used to beat them up. But, Joe, I mean, there is a, Joe, there is a difference between abuse and spanking, right? Uh, like my, my wife and my siblings-in-law, I don't think any of them were abused, but they were all spanked. You know, same thing. I mean, abusive is one thing, but spanking is another, right? But I certainly don't think that even spanking or paddling, even if it's not abusive, I certainly don't think that that's something that schools should be doing, right? I agree with you 100%. Listen, when you look at Carmine's face when you get home from work, would you ever think of raising your hand at that cute face? No, you wouldn't, okay? you would. When he gets older, you're going to want to do like we do with our, our kids. You're going to want to talk to them. And treat them like human beings. Same with animals. You don't hit animals. I agree with you 100%. I don't think this should be instituted. You know, kids that are bad, they should go to, like, reform school where they're reformed. But you don't do that in front of other children also. When is that going to make kids think that violence is the answer? Frank, have a good night. Thanks, Joe. 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, Frank. Um, I went to Catholic school and witnessed corporal punishment back in the late 70s, early 80s, and I see no benefit to this at all. And I would question the kind of parent that would sign up for something like this. And also, what kind of training do you give a teacher to do this? How much violence is acceptable? And how old can the child be? I mean, can you hit a a high schooler? I mean, this is crazy. And I look at the places where this is allowed. These are some of the worst performing school systems in the country. Clearly, what they're doing isn't working already. I don't think we need to encourage this. I think it's a disaster, and I don't understand why anyone would support it. Yeah, uh, thank you, David. That's why I did make a point of mentioning the change in Oklahoma, where they have prohibited the practice for students with severe disabilities but not not just disabilities. I don't know if you're the teacher, how you make that determination, where that line is drawn between ability and severe, excuse me, disability and severe disability. Makes no sense to me. I'm going to, we're going to continue with your calls in just a minute. There was some other stuff to get to. We have some updates on what NASA did yesterday and some other fun stories that we're going to get into. 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Live life. Live life like you're gonna die because you're gonna. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're gonna die. Maybe not today or even next year, but before you know it, you'll be saying, Is this all there was? What was all the fuss? Why did I bother? Now, maybe you won't suffer, maybe it's quick, but you'll have time to think. Why did I waste it? Why didn't I taste it? You'll have time. Cause you're gonna die. Yes, it's gonna happen because it's happened to a lot of people I know. My mother, my father, my loves, the president, the kings, and the pope. They all had hope, and they muttered just before they went, maybe. This is the great William Shatner, go. one of my favorite songs of his, not only because of the manner in which he performs it, but because of the maybe lyrics. It's called You'll Have Time. And, uh, you know, I wanted to play this the other day, actually, when we had Malachi McCord on. And uh, I'm hoping to go see Malachi on Friday. And uh, he's in hospice now. And uh, we're going to try and arrange a part two of an interview with him, maybe the following week. And uh, Malachi McCourt, even though I don't, I'm pretty sure he's an atheist, I don't think he believes in God, he has the best approach to dying of anybody that I've ever met. And um, the guy seems as cheerful as can be, as cheerful as can be. You know, with some, we have this Facebook group, and you can comment um, on any of the stories we're covering or any of the guests we have or any of the topics that we do. Uh, just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. And somebody in there, I don't remember who, um, made the comment that they thought that the approach to terminal illness, as expressed by uh, Malachi McCourt, and the approach from Charlie Finch, who unfortunately killed himself last week, was such a study in contrast. And I don't remember who said that, but it was very on the money as far as I'm concerned. And it's gotten me thinking a great deal about uh, mortality. All right, we're going to get back to your calls in just a moment. Today's a big day for us in the Morano household because today is the day, this afternoon, I am going to be taking my car back to the dealership where I've been leasing it from. And if all goes according to plan, I will get a check for approximately $6,000. So that is exciting. Although uh, we have a couple of potential hurdles. Now, I have to use this to pay my American Express bill, which has has you know, a fair amount of money on it, which I'll do probably. But first hurdle is this, is my wife and I are slated to return to Atlantic City Sunday for the first time in a while. So here you have a situation where I'm going to have a few thousand dollars right before going to Atlantic City. That's kind of a dangerous position. A fellow that I used to work for, do some part-time work for, um, <laughs> he owed me some money, and it got to be a, a fair amount of money. And he knew that I was going to Atlantic City, and he hands me $2,000 cash. This is going back four years. Hands me $2,000 cash. And he says, you know, 
I was really going to, I was going to tell you I didn't have it yet, and I was going to wait until you got back from Atlantic City so that you didn't blow it all out there. But I figured you're an adult. You can make decisions about how you want to spend it. And I don't think I did blow it all out there. I think that was a, w- a weekend that I came out a, a winner. But it's kind of the same situation. I wonder, maybe I should push this back a week until I'm back from Atlantic City. But here's the other hurdle, and I wonder what other couples do that share a car, which is what my wife and I are going to do now. I have 40 or 50, whatever the maximum number is, of presets on the radio, right? And I have a whole process of how I go through these presets. Obviously, you know, this this station is preset one. But my wife has her own set of presets. And I wonder, is there something like a profile that I can hit to... I don't know, make my presets come up instead of hers? Or are we going to have to negotiate how these presets go? I'm wondering what other couples do. I don't remember what kind of car she has, but it's it's an SUV. So it's a, it's a modern one. It's like 2020. It's got all the latest bells and whistles. I don't know. Or maybe it's 2021 even. But I don't know what other what other couples do in terms of uh, sharing the the car and sharing radio presets. Or if there's a way, like I said... To like when you log on to Netflix or Hulu, say, all right, now this is Frank driving or this is Rachel driving and all your radio presets come up for that. So I'm looking forward to that trip to Atlantic City. It's been a while since we've been and uh, there's a, certainly a lot to get to. 800-848-9222. Brian is in Brooklyn. Hello, Brian. Hello, Frank. You're terrific. Thank you. Uh I just wanted to make a point. I was PTA president for six years at PS 130 in Brooklyn. And uh, that was the elementary school, which is different from middle school, which is different from high school. Uh, You have to uh, have a nurse on board, which we used to have in my day, and check out the children. Some are very frail. Some can't take that kind of discipline. But my neighbor turned around and brought his kid back to Jamaica because he said they were too wild here. And in Jamaica, they do a, like the British, they do a cane. But we had the nuns who had said, I'll smack you on the legs with a switch. And she, she never did, but she always threatened us. And she'd embarrass us in elementary school. But uh, the other thing is, is what you were saying, it, it, it's very, it's very tricky. You have to have good training for your teachers. Now, the other thing that got me upset was they did away. They cut back on the uh, uh, gym teacher. He left. So the boys are very rambunctious. And they put them on Ritalin. I said, I don't want the kids taking pills. Get them out into the playground in the yard at break time twice a day. Mm. Run them around. The girls weren't really into it that much, but they also loved it. They don't do that anymore. So, uh, well, Brian, I certainly, I certainly agree with you on on both the the lack of physical education and the overuse of prescription drugs. I don't know if we're talking about educational policy here. I don't know that either of those are are directly related to a school district making a decision about whether to bring back corporate corporal punishment as uh, Caswell has and as 19 states allow you to do. I think the discussion about drugs and the discussion about physical education, while both important, 
I think that's largely a separate discussion. I mean, let's say you're cheating on a test. Let's say you're caught cheating on a test, something that uh, if you're authorized by a parent in Caswell, you would get paddled on the backside for. I don't think that has anything to do with Ritalin or no gym teachers. That's something that kids are always going to try. Kids are always going to try and find a way to cheat uh, to cheat on a test. 800-848-9222. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. How's it going? Um, I don't believe it in myself. Uh, I was telling the screener a little story. Like, well, my mother, when, when she, when my brother and I would fight, like if we were fighting bad, she went crazy on us. Crazy. So in college, my, my girlfriend had three sons. Um, well, they were they were okay as long as it was two of them together or one. But if you had all three of them, we kind of get, get crazy. But So uh, one of them brought a Tonka truck down on the back of, of the younger son's head. Oh, boy. And Yeah, yeah. So I was yeah, I, I gave him a look. I was raising my hand. Like I, was, I wasn't even going to hit him. I was just going to give him a little twat, pretend, you know. But the look in my face, he must have seen my mother or something. Cause he, he, like, he gave a little, like, a little run, like a hop with his hands on his butt. Like, like I actually spanked him, you know. So I don't know, maybe he saw my mother in my face. I don't know. <laughs> so, but, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe in myself, really. So that's, that, that's it. Thank you, Eric. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, let me first start by the famous words of uh, Pat O'Brien. There's no such thing as a bad boy. Uh, that was either Boys Town or Angels with Dirty Faces. Maybe both of them. I, I don't mm. remember. But, you know, we we give parents uh, the right to intervene in their education of their children. Uh, we let them say if they wanted to get the kid vaccinated or not vaccinated. We we try to give them that right. We, we let them uh, have input uh, of a teacher saying that uh, your mommy's your daddy or your daddy's your mommy. Uh, we try to give them that right. So... Why should we interfere if a parent approves of corporal punishment for their kids? It's their choice of how yeah, they want uh, the kid raised. Hey, Neil, that's fair. Uh, that's fair. I guess um, if if it were my uh, yeah, you know, look, you you said it right, and the, and Doctor um, you know Doctor Johnson said the same thing. It's an opt in. I just don't know of any evidence uh, other than anecdotal that shows it's effective at correcting poor behavior, right? So that's why, right? Because it doesn't work. That's why. And because it's brutal. As that one professor that I, uh, that I quoted, Professor Gershoff, said, we're basically creating a two-tier system of justice. We're saying you can, if you, if you paddle an adult, that's assault and you can be arrested. But if you paddle a child whose parent has opted in, then that's okay. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think it's appropriate from a legal perspective, a moral perspective, a psychological one. And as all this research shows, it doesn't work. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Tommy is on Staten Island. Hello, Tommy. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Great. Thank you. I, I, I kind of agree with it, but I don't agree with it. Not my kid, because <laughs> uh, I, I I grew up with my my mother and father got divorced, and uh, to get me out of the the mean streets and great kills in the eighties, <laughs> my mother sent me to live with my grandmother in Florida. And then being, you know, as a kid I was, I got to a fist fight right in the middle of class with some dude, and. Um, they told my grandmother either I get a the paddle or I sent home for two days suspension. 
So I had no choice but to get the paddle. So your grandmother chose it? Oh, yeah. No, no. She told me, you know, get home. Uh, Tommy, <laughs> you're breaking up a little bit there. But if you can, yeah. if you can make out what I'm saying, do you think that the fact that you were paddled as a child, did that help correct the the behavioral issues that you were dealing with? Didn't take. Wait, I'm sorry. What did you say? It didn't take. It did not. <laughs> it work. That's interesting. See, that's that's my experience based on looking at this research. It doesn't look like it works. 800-848-9222. Deborah is in Brooklyn. Hello, Deborah. Deborah! All right, Deborah's got other priorities. Gino's in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Yeah, listen to all these hypocritical parents now. Oh, not my kids, not my kids. They were the worst people out there. That's why, anyway. <laughs> um, this uh, this school district thing is a little bizarre because you know this this isn't what I'm really my my original comment, but the state law gives you permission to discipline your children, um, so it's really more of an opting out than an opting in because they already have that in. Except that the unions have no backbone; they don't back their teachers when they if if and when they did do this. So it's more of a union issue and uh, everything else. But that's not still not why I'm calling. Um, as a kid growing up in Brooklyn. I would get whooped by strangers because that's the community I grew up. I wasn't worried about the teachers. I'd get a foot in my rear end on the regular just from people commuting because I was on the street acting like an idiot. You know, so it was just accepted in the whole neighborhood. But then again, I grew up in a neighborhood where, you know, old Italian ladies wore black veils until they died. You know, but that's just the world I grew up in. Well, and so do you think that um, the we were better off back then when you were getting beat by strangers? Well, I mean, did it work? No, but boys will be boys, right? And if you didn't, and, and I'll be honest with you, I, I go correcting kids, or I don't put my, you know, I don't put my foot in their rear, but I go out there correcting kids that are wild and in the street all the time because well, they will continue, right? If nobody yeah, intercedes, but, their bad behavior will continue it out in public. I think it's a big difference, though, between um, what you're doing and maybe maybe yelling at a kid that's uh, drinking beer on a sidewalk or being loud in the middle of the street in the middle of the night. And and putting your hands on somebody, but if it does, but if, to go back to what you said though, if it doesn't work, then why why was that a better situation? Because it takes a village, mm-hmm. right? It's a whole community, to do, and especially tell you the big difference today is you have more single parent, detached parenting households where then really well at the same time the kids are on the street as much either though, so I guess one offsets the other, <laughs> but. You know, uh, there was more of a family unit growing up, right? And so when you acted out, the whole and the whole community came out, and everybody takes takes a village to control you. And although it didn't mean much, everybody kind of had a piece of the pie. Whereas today, these kids are just, uh, they're not really running amok, but there's no supervision. You know, they're left in their rooms alone, and, and they're exposed to all sorts of things on their own. But they still, boys will be boys, right? And they're still going to act stupid on the trains, and they're still going to act like idiots in public, and you got to correct them. You can't just think, oh, who are you to talk to my kid? Well, you know, my, my No, no, again, I think, speaking, I think speaking to a child is a, is a big difference than, uh, than giving one a, a smack, yeah, personally. But uh, <laughs> uh, do you know, am I going to see you in Atlantic City this weekend? Uh, you're gonna no, but you're gonna. I'm gonna be there a few days before you, so I'll bring the mojo down for you. All right, leave some money for me. Uh, don't don't take all the money out of there before. <laughs> you you got it. Right, thank you, Gino. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jacqueline is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jacqueline. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Um, I happen to agree with a lot of what you've said. Your uh, opinion on all of this, and a lot of your other callers as well. 
I also went to Catholic school. I saw the nuns hitting the boys mostly on the hands and the fingers with the ruler. That That is just barbaric. I, I mean, I'd like to think that we've evolved as a society. There are other ways, I think, that are much more effective in terms of disciplining children. Um, I know there was a, a little boy that I was involved in his life. I was kind of like a, a surrogate mother to him. His mother wasn't really involved in his life. And he was very much into video games. And I think if you take things away, if you take privileges away from children, uh, they can't go on a class trip, that you take their video games away. You don't send them to their room where they have all their video games, the TV and telephone and everything like that. No, you take those things away from them. That is going to have more of an impact on them. And maybe they'll think twice about their behavior. Um, or, you know, treating a child with violence is only teaching them how to be violent. Well, I, 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 would, we I would agree with you, Jacqueline, and, but I would just add to your point that maybe taking something away from someone is, uh, is the best method of disciplining this child or that child. Maybe for someone else, it's making them do more chores around the house, and I think the, or, or some other method, right? But the people yeah. that probably know their child's disciplinary triggers best are that child's parents, not, right. not a teacher or a principal that's not exposed uh, as, as intimately as a parent would be to that child. That's one of the reasons that I also don't love that a, a teacher or a principal would be metting out this punishment. That's right. And it also is taking, it's kind of playing good cop, bad cop. Uh, the parents' role and responsibility so that they don't have to be the bad cop right. is pushed off on the right. teacher. And that's not right. Yeah, that, that, now, that's not uh, a way to, way to uh, raise children. I, thank you very much, uh, Jacqueline. I remember when, I believe the young man was Michael Kingsley. And I'll be very impressed if I'm right about that. But I believe it was Michael Kingsley who was caned in Singapore. This is 30 years ago. And, and he's an American boy. And this ignited a whole debate about caning and government-administered corporal punishment. And whether or not uh, – and that, look, they pointed out all how great things were in Singapore. No graffiti, no vandalism, no crime. And then they compared that to the situation on American cities at that point, which didn't look as good as Singapore. And a lot of the corporal punishment proponents – pointed to Singapore as an example of how things were working well. So, look, uh, there's always another side to this. I always try to present all sides of every argument, but including this one. And there's a, I don't know how these flies get in here. There is a fly in here or a mosquito. I think it's a mosquito. I don't know where they're coming You've from. You've got a problem. And so I'm trying to grab it because it's, it's a taunting me. It's really irksome. Where is this guy? They have to start wearing bug spray. I don't know. All right. 800-848-9222. Barbara is in Brooklyn. Hello, Barbara. Hi. How are you? Uh, Aside Um, from this fly that's flying around here, I'm doing fine. (laughs) Great. Yeah, I disagree with the corporal punishment in the school system because we have many sadistic people in the world today who use whips and chains as a form of sexual abuse, and there's no one there to stop the teacher from getting extreme. Um, I hear people administering whips and chains a, as a form of sexual behavior, and I don't want that administered on my child. 
Right. They equated also to a type of slavery. When a slave got beat, no one stopped them. It's well, you, not effective. It causes long-term anger and rage in the person. Well, and to Parents your point, need to, guess the, to, yes. to, to your point, Barbara, uh, the uh, great philosopher Donna from Huntington said, can you picture a 10-year-old girl being touched by a male teacher? I mean, that's fair. You take a 200-pound male teacher, uh, maybe somebody that doesn't know his own strength in terms of wielding a paddle, and there's a 10-year-old little girl, it's a bit much. Now, as far as the sexual aspect of this goes, I I know there's a lot of people that are into uh, bondage or sadism or masochism. I don't – I mean, if that's what you're into, God bless you. But that's, that's all consenting adults, right? I don't think there's a sexual component to a principal in, in, in one of these school districts. or But I guess you never know. Or a teacher trying to administer that behavior. But uh, if that's what you're into in private, I say, you know, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't affect me at all. God bless you. As long as no one gets hurt, you're behind closed doors, whatever. A consenting adult. But if you're talking children here, I think you really need to be concerned about what kind of corrective disciplinary measures are going to lead to them being well-adjusted members of society. And I think the research suggests that corporal punishment isn't it. I don't know. 800-848-9222. I want to move on to some other issues as well, but uh, I know a lot of people have been holding for a while, so I'm going to try and get to at least a few more of you. Uh, Joe is in Huntington. Hello, Joe. Yes, I think it's actually depends upon the shepherd, okay? The rod and the staff are used by shepherds to keep their sheep in order, okay? Also, I don't think there's anything wrong with chasing a child, okay? And a child needs to be chased, so he learns discipline, learns how to be attentive, okay? And I would say that purpose of the rod and the staff that the child is chastened by his father, the main shepherd in his life. Yeah, so, and your, your phone's a little screwy there, Joe, so I'm going to let you go. But um, I think if a father wants to make this decision as to how to discipline their child, that's one thing. I think if a teacher does it, that's that's another. I really think it's a different, totally different dynamic. Because you know, as a a parent... What's going to work with your children? I think maybe you don't, but you know better than a teacher does. Maybe a teacher could recommend to a parent, hey, you know, if this were my child, uh, I would uh, I would give this child a beating. I'd take the belt out and uh, give him a whipping. All right. Uh, let that be up to the parent to determine if the, that's the most effective manner to, um, you know, to met out discipline. You know, I, I just I just I don't love this strategy. And again, the best thing about it is it's an opt-in. So, all right, 800-848-9222. We'll go through the mail straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, this is Fly. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing as bumper music, you could join our Facebook group. We post them in there after the show. Uh, just go on Facebook, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And if you ever miss any of this show, you can um, you can just subscribe to the podcast and by searching uh, The Other Side of Midnight. Please give us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And hit the subscribe button, and you'll get this podcast sent to your phone each and every morning. Without further ado, it is time to give those of you who prefer the written word to the telephone an opportunity to be heard. Yeah, so we still don't have the snail mail. I think um, we're a little behind on uh, going to the P.O. box and getting the snail mail. I sent a note to our program director, so we're mostly email today. And uh, this gentleman writes, Frank, I'm curious if you've asked your space guests about the question of safety visiting space, say compared with space with safely traveling on a passenger airline, etc. Also, since most of us would be since most would be fearful of risking a flight to space, you should also include in your question to your listeners, how much would you agree to be paid to go to space? Be paid to go to space? People are paying two or three hundred thousand dollars to go to space. Do you think there's a lot of folks that uh, I, I think if you're afraid to go to space, you're not gonna do it for a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars. But yeah, that's a separate Discussion, I suppose. We could definitely go into that in the future. But uh, as far as the safety of space travel, I really think there's no comparison to any other form of transportation because the number of people that have gone into space, even now with these space billionaires giving people the opportunity to charter flights to space, the number of people that have ever gone into space, even one of these 10-minute suborbital flights, is so infinitesimally small that you really can't adequately compare it to any other form of transportation. Uh, so I, I don't think it's an apples-to-apples comparison in the least. Linda writes on the subject of corporal punishment. Hi, Frank. I personally believe that corporal punishment many, many times may lead to unwanted results. Of course, this does not apply to all, but many people who exhibit aggressive behaviors and essentially having criminal records in addition to abusing animals as a child, they also had a history of being subjected to corporal punishment. Schoolyard bullies many times have parents that have used corporal punishment. As a psychotherapist and intake clinician, many people who later suffer from various mental health issues were physically abused as children as a usual means of punishment. Okay, there's uh, Linda's take. Uh, Ellen! writes, I just finished listening to the podcast from August 25th. Frankly, when I heard you were going to be talking about Dr. Fauci retiring and asking people to give their opinions, I was very trepidatious, and I actually thought I might skip over that part. I know how filled with venom some people can be, but I was very pleasantly surprised. You presented 
a very fair assessment laying out both sides. Even though you were clear on your opinion, you were fair in your presentation, stating both his accomplishments as well as his faults. And then you let both sides be heard. You let everyone speak, and they did so respectfully, and you didn't argue with them. But I never would have expected you to do that anyway, because that's not your style. I'm so thankful for the way you presented the topic. It was just a wonderful segment. I, myself, am very thankful for Dr. Fauci and what he did. I know he made some mistakes, especially with the masking. But in general, I'm very, very thankful for how he handled the pandemic. There were mistakes made by him and by others, too. Thanks again for a wonderful and fair piece. I wouldn't expect anything less from you, Frank. It makes me proud to say I'm one of your listeners. You know, I must say of Ellen, who posts regularly in the Facebook group, I used to think that maybe I was a genius that would not be appreciated within my own lifetime. Somebody like Van Gogh, who would be discovered 20, 30, 40 years after my death, and people would be listening to this person and say, why didn't we appreciate this person while he was alive? I must say that because Ellen is out there, I can no longer say that. I'm My genius is at least appreciated by Ellen in my lifetime. So that, there's that. Thank you. Uh, Kevin writes... Good evening, Frank. I enjoyed listening to your interview with the mechanic who was advocating for restoring trade education. This is a much bigger issue which deserves more attention. I was a troubled teenager who never finished the 10th grade. This, uh, I'm not proud of this. My children and most of my closest friends know nothing of this stage in my life. I began working on heavy trucks and diesel-powered equipment at the age of 16. Shortly thereafter, I was able to enroll in diesel mechanic school, and I excelled. I found very good employment opportunities and was able to purchase my first house at the age of 21. I read enormous amounts of technical information related to my work and developed a love of reading. A few years later, I attained the level of master heavy truck technician, through ASE certification. Other than my time in trade school, I'm a self-educated man, but I owe my success to trade school. It's sad to see trade education disappear in this country. Our leaders on both sides of the aisle have disregarded the importance of a well-rounded workforce that includes college-educated and vocationally trained workers. There's no shame in not attaining a college degree, but we drill into our kids that they must be college educated to succeed. Throughout my career, I never had to worry about finding employment, and I have always earned a very comfortable living. By the way, I worked my ass off to pay my way through trade school, which included a loan that was relieved by nobody. Uh, If you decide to share this, please don't mention my name. And thank you for saving Overnight Radio. You're welcome. You're welcome. I will say that. That's a nice, uh, a nice email, and I'm glad he sent it because I really am very serious about this trade education issue, and I'm going to invite that guest he referenced, my buddy Mike Porcelli, back on the show, and he wants to do a whole regular series of discussions about this, calling it the other side of education. And I really, I strongly agree with this. Somebody asked me when my son was first born, how would you feel if, um, if Carmine became a plumber? I said, that would be great love that. You know the kind of money that he could make? And the kind of plumbing work he could help us with? That'd be great. So, And the person would say, well, you know, you're going to be spending all this money on his schooling and you have such a love of learning. I said, the knowledge that a plumber has is no better or worse than the knowledge a historian has. It's just different. And I, I, I would argue it's a lot more practical and a lot better way to make a, a living. 
All right. Um, if we didn't get to your email or your message today, perhaps we will do it on the next edition of... Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, who was a Jeopardy question yesterday, make sure you help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you were born in the United States within the last 50 years or so, chances are pretty good that one of the first things you did as a baby was give a DNA sample to the government. By the 1970s, states had established newborn screening programs in which a nurse takes a few drops of blood from a pinprick on a baby's heel then sends the sample to a lab to test for certain diseases. Over the years, the list of diseases that they test for has grown from just a few conditions to dozens. This blood is supposed to be used for medical purposes. These screenings identify babies with serious health issues, and they have been really successful at reducing death, and disability among children. But now, there is a new public records lawsuit which I have found absolutely eye-opening, absolutely shocking, absolutely galling. If you can pick any other, um, I don't know, is it a verb? No, an adjective that ends in I-N-G. I have found it that way. What are words that end in I-N-G? They're, they're, they're adjectives, I guess, right? Well, we'll come back to that. We'll put a pin on that. I'm a little embarrassed that I don't know that. Matt Place, do you know that at all? So, uh, words that end in I-N-G? Yeah, like shocking. What, what kind of, is that an adjective? No. What is That's it? It's an action word. It's a verb. No, a verb. No, it's not a verb. Shock is a verb. But the I-N-G. But it's an action. It's an action. An adjective is, no, des- no. is describing yeah, something. Right. And shocking is describing the action that I'm shocked by. So it is, true. And I just looked it up. Shocking is an adjective. All right. So oh, the shocking. ing words are are adjectives, which was my initial instinct. But so, r- what about running? Running, that's well, that's that's interesting. What kind of what, what kind of part of speech is running? So running is. Um, let's see, let's see if we look up running in the dictionary here. Let's see, running is. Doesn't it's not really clear. It's 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 both a. Noun and an adjective, depending on how it's used. Running is an adjective. Yeah, if you, I was running to the store. No, th- that's that's uh, that's not. Uh, so it, it, it run if you describe a running jump, for instance, or hot and cold running water. Those are adjectives. So t- t- talk to McMillan and the dictionary people. But back to the shocking lawsuit that I. And very that I find very interesting. Now, this blood that they take from babies is supposed to be used for medical purposes. 
these screenings identify health issues. But now there's this public records lawsuit just been filed in the state of New Jersey. And it suggests that these samples, these blood samples from babies are, I I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but I absolutely believe I'm going to say this. These samples are also being used by police in criminal investigations. So there's been a lawsuit filed by the state's office of the public defender and the New Jersey Monitor, which is a nonprofit news outlet. And it alleges that state police sought a newborn's blood sample from the New Jersey Department of Health to investigate the child's father in connection with a sexual assault from the 1990s. This is incredible. We are now allowing blood samples of babies to be used without anybody's permission to incriminate their parents. This is crazy. Crystal Grant, a technology fellow at the American Civil Liberties Union, says the case represents a whole new leap forward in the misuse of DNA by law enforcement. In essence, it means that essentially every baby born in the U.S. could be included in police surveillance. Do you know how dangerous that is? The I know a lot of, nobody likes crime, right? And you might say, oh, well, there's a lot of murders that we could probably catch by getting these samples of baby DNA. Well, there's a lot of rapists that we could probably catch. Then where do you draw the line from there? Shoplifting? Assault? Do we really want to turn these babies into DNA factories to incriminate their parents? My vote is no. So it's not known how many agencies around the country have sought to use newborn screening samples to investigate crimes or how often these attempts were successful. But there's at least one other instance of this happening. December of 2020, a local TV station reported that police in California had issued five search warrants to access such samples and that at least one cold case that was solved in California with the help of a newborn baby's blood. Crystal Grant, this increasing overreach into the health system by police to get genetic information is really concerning. Gee, you think so? Now, privacy activists, of which I am absolutely one, have also raised alarms about what they see as similar misuses of other kinds of DNA collection. Uh, We talked about this at the time. I'm always on top of these DNA stories. But in a recent case, police in San Francisco used a sample collected during a woman's rape exam to tie her to an unrelated property crime years later. Imagine that. They took the DNA of a rape victim to charge her with a crime. Well, they didn't take it to charge her with a crime. They then used that DNA sample to charge her with a crime. Um, This New Jersey lawsuit, I think, is so interesting. And I'm going to be following this very closely. And maybe we'll even invite some of these people on the show. Um, The New Jersey lawsuit alleges that police obtained the blood sample of a newborn child who's now in elementary school to perform a DNA analysis that linked the baby's father to a crime. This was done using a a technique 
called investigative genetic genealogy or forensic genealogy, which it usually involves isolating DNA left at a crime scene and using it to create a digital genetic profile of a, sus- of a suspect. Investigators can upload this profile to genealogy websites where other people have freely shared their own DNA information in the hope of connecting with family members or learning about their ancestry. Because DNA is shared within families, investigators can use relative matches to map out a suspect's family tree and narrow down their identity. According to this lawsuit, police had reopened an investigation into a cold case and had some used genetics, and they'd used genetics to place the suspect within a single family. And one of several adults or their children could have been the person they were looking for. But police didn't yet have probable cause to obtain search warrants for DNA swabs from any of them. Instead, they asked the state's newborn screening lab for a blood sample of one of the children. Now think about that. Authorities did not have probable cause to obtain search warrants for DNA swabs. And even though there wasn't enough evidence to get a search warrant, they just asked the newborn screening lab for a blood sample of one of the children. At at what point do we just throw away the Fourth Amendment and the Bill of Rights, right? I mean, we're shredding civil liberties like crazy. Why not just do away with this whole Constitution thing? If there's now an end run around the Fourth Amendment, search warrant, huh, you don't need a search warrant. Just find a sucker that's stupid enough to have a child. We'll get that blood without anybody's permission. Certainly not the baby or the parent, so that we can find this person to throw in jail. This is ludicrous. Jennifer Saliti is the communications director for the New Jersey Public Defender's Office. She was on PBS uh, talking about why they're suing. The concern when law enforcement tries to use genetic material in a way that sort of sidesteps the warrant requirement is just that, that we have a procedure in place that when a police officer or an investigating body wants to access material as private as our genes, uh, there's a process for that, and the process is to apply for a search warrant. So here, what we are seeing is a process that went around the warrant requirement and used uh, this database that was created for the sole purpose of screening newborns for genetic diseases. Um, we see police using this data in a way that it was never intended to be used, and it's we see it as an end run around the Constitution. Yes. See, I didn't even hear her say that. And I knew, and that's the same word that I used. This is exactly right. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Do you find this as disturbing as I do and as Jennifer Saliti does? By the way, uh, disturbing is a gerund or a participle, according to Alex Barnard. And see, I knew it was something like that. I knew it wasn't just a plain old regular adjective. And I got also a message from James in New Hampshire who said the same thing, that it's a gerund. So uh, 800-848-9222, I find this incredibly bad news. Um, in that case, by the way, in the New Jersey case, analysis of this gen- genetic information revealed a close relationship between the baby's DNA 
and the DNA taken at the crime scene, indicating that the baby's father was the person police were seeking. That was enough to establish probable cause, so police sought a warrant from a cheek swab from the father. After analyzing his DNA, the suit says police found that it was a match to the crime scene. So Jennifer Saliti says that combining newborn screening samples with this genetic genealogy opens the door for virtually anyone's DNA to be used in a criminal investigation. She's exactly right. Let's just do do away with the Fourth Amendment. So the lawsuit is targeting the New Jersey Department of Health and the state-run lab that conducts newborn screening. Here's uh, Jennifer Saliti one more time on what they're looking for in this lawsuit. It's a little difficult to answer the question of what we're looking to find because we don't know what we don't know. Uh, But really, we put the records request out there because what we want to find out is how often this process is being used. How often our law enforcement agency is trying to access a public health database for a purpose that it was never intended uh, to be used for. Did this happen once? Has it happened hundreds of times? Where is it happening? And it'll be only once we have the data that we're able then to decide what the next step is and and how we go forward from here. Well, this is, I think, very interesting. Uh, And by the way, um, I've got another SMS text message here, and you can SMS text message me at 8168Morano that says, interesting in the context that I just used it, is indeed an adjective not a gerund or a participle, as Alex Barnard claims. So there's a big debate out there, not only about this issue of taking the blood samples of DNA, but about the gerund versus adjective situation. You be the judge. 800-848-9222. I don't know about you, but uh, I enjoy the civil liberties that are offered and to me by the Constitution And I think we need to preserve and enhance those civil liberties, not find a way to erase them. And uh, does that mean some some bad guys won't be caught? Yes, absolutely. But uh, the Constitution exists to protect everybody, good, bad, or somewhere in between. And our job is to protect the Constitution and the civil liberties that are within it, not to find a way to throw someone in prison no matter what the cost. 800-848-9222. So Natalie Rahm, who's a law professor at the University of Maryland, she said that it was only a matter of time before police turned to newborn blood samples. She said, I remember how they caught the Golden State Killer. They caught the Golden State Killer, and we talked about this a great deal previously, when someone in the Golden State Killer's family submitted their DNA to one of these DNA testing websites. And what Natalie Rahm said is that in this post-Golden State killer world, law enforcement is now looking around and seeking to identify suspects using genetic samples or genetic data outside of the official law enforcement repositories. This is a brave new world, folks, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's for the best. 800-848-9222. Let me uh, tell you what's coming up. So, I've been listening to uh, the Cats at Night show a great deal, and I'm always interested whenever they have Ed Cox on. Ed Cox is a smart guy. Not only was he Charlie Finch's cousin, but he was Richard Nixon's son-in-law. And so because he knew the Nixon family during the whole Watergate situation, he's 
particularly expert in anything having to do with Watergate. So um, Ed Cox, whenever he's on the Cats at Night show, is always going on and on about the Presidential Records Act. And I'm going to make a confession to you here. I don't think I could have told you what the Presidential Records Act was. It was implemented in 1978, passed into law, signed into law in 1978. And prior to that, presidents owned all their papers. They could do whatever they want with them. They could burn them. They could keep them. They could donate them. They could use them to write books. In 1978, in the aftermath of Watergate, that all changed. And that's sort of a little bit of what's at play here with this Mar-a-Lago raid. So I read this fascinating column on the history of the Presidential Records Act and what life was like for these presidential papers before and after this presidential act by Ronald Schaefer. And I invited uh, Ronald Schaefer to come on the show, and he's going to do that in about uh, 10 minutes. I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. 800-848-9222. I'd love your – we have six open lines if you want to comment on this lawsuit from the state of New Jersey where they're actually using – and I'm betting other states are doing this too. We know California is doing it. We know New Jersey is doing it. I'm betting this is more prevalent than people realize – where law enforcement agencies are using the DNA of babies to incriminate their parents. Pretty dangerous, if you ask me. Jennifer Saletti said uh, that, um, that you know, I don't know what she says in this comment here, but um, if not for this case that they're that they've explored in the lawsuit, then there would be no lawsuit. I think that's what she's saying. If it was not for this particular case, um, and really some excellent work by the attorney involved in the case, as well as Tamara Lair, who leads our forensic science efforts, we would never have known about this. And where we are now is just trying to figure out how often this is happening, and then you know cross that bridge when we get there. But we think the public and parents and children whose blood is being stored in this database deserve to know how it's being used as well as people who are charged with crimes. They deserve to know how it's being used as well so we can make sure it's being used lawfully. 800-848-9222. What do you think? Uh, Six open lines if you want to comment. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Larry! Uh, Benny is in Harlem. Hello, Benny. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Great. Great. Listen, I've been waiting a long time to talk to you, and I think you're wonderful. God bless you and your show and do great. Thank now, you. listen, I want to talk about the, uh, the school thing. Number one, I raised nine nieces and seven nephews and put them all through top schools. I make I start busting their butt when they're in ninth grade to work on the SATs right away. They got to score in the top 1%. That way you don't have to pay for college. You understand what I'm saying? These kids need discipline. Now, when I had one of my nieces and nephews go to Catholic school, one was going to second grade and the boy was going to third grade. I asked the principal, I said, listen, do you have any of them old nuns around here with the with the three-foot ruler? She said, yeah, we got one left. I said, okay, where's she at? She said, well, she's in the fifth grade. I said, so? She said, you can't go there. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you double. Sit up right next door. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Th- <laughs> thank you, Benny. All right. Benny's uh, Benny's got his two cents there on uh, on that one. Not, not sure how to respond to that. Whatever works for you. I'm a big believer. Whatever works for an individual family, that's great. Um, but uh, I don't think this is a way, uh, the, the previous topic, that's not something that we should be looking to go back to, in my opinion. And I don't think this is something, the DNA issue here, is something that we should be 
looking to move towards. Now, there was an article in the Texas Law Review, and they looked at state policies regarding newborn screening screening programs. And they found that while many would theoretically protect these blood samples from police use, other state statutes like New Jersey's are not clear. So because there are no federal laws governing newborn screening programs, states set their own policies on which diseases they test for, how long samples are stored, and how they can be used. Some states hold on to blood samples for months, others for years or decades. Virginia only keeps samples from infants with normal results for six months. Michigan retains them for up to 100 years. 100 years! New Jersey stores samples for 23 years before destroying them. There are so many ways that genetic material can be misused. And if New Jersey is going to store this genetic material for 23 years, this is just a recipe for misuse to happen. My two cents. All right. uh, We're going to talk about the Presidential Records Act in just a moment with Ronald Schaefer. Ronald Schaefer Schaefer is a former Wall Street Journal political features editor. And uh, these days he does a lot of freelance reporting as well. He also had the audacity to disagree with me on the Willie Mays situation that we covered yesterday. But uh, he seems like a smart guy nonetheless. And so we're going to talk to him straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. conservatorship that she was in is very interesting. Um, She posted this audio message on Twitter, a voice memo in which she shares, um, you know, uh, some of the most intimate details of her life, including some of the struggles that she's been undergoing for a while. And uh, she deleted this. So maybe she thought twice about this, but um, she said, and she's right. I get nothing out of sharing this. I have offers to do interviews with Oprah and so many people for lots and lots of money, but it's insane. I don't want any of it. For me, it's beyond a sit-down proper interview. So I don't know why she deleted that if she wanted her story out there, but it was interesting that she chose to just share it for free instead of doing a paid interview of some sort. All right, we're trying to get a hold of Ronald Schaefer and... um, we, you know, hopefully we'll be successful, but if not, we've got other things to talk about. 800-848-9222. Jay is in the Poconos. Hello, Jay. Good morning, Frank. How you doing? Great. Thanks, Jay. Good. So, uh, my youngest sister was beaten to death 
when she was 20 years old. Oh. The civil rights were you know, dissolved in an instant. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but uh, I wonder, like, uh, I, I get what you're saying about people's civil rights, but I feel like the victims deserve their civil rights back in some form, too. Yeah, you know, Jay, I have um, never had a family member that was murdered. I, I had a very close friend uh, that was murdered, and I know how painful that was and how painful it was for, you know, for his sister and his family. So I can't imagine what you and your family, uh, you know, have gone through. And there's really nothing uh, that I – by the way, did they catch the your sister's killer? No, no, that person remains free. But ah. if I could change topics on you just for a second um, – so the other day, I thought this was ironic. They, the local convenience store, uh, they cut down six trees, uh, shade-producing, uh, oxygen-generating, carbon dioxide-eating trees in order to put charging stations in for electric cars. <laughs> I thought that was pretty ironic. Uh, there's certainly an irony there, uh, Jay. But, uh, you know, just as far as the point you're making that we need to do whatever it takes to um, to take murder, to, you know, to catch murderers. Um, you know, I'm sympathetic to that as a, from a from a victim's perspective. And there's really no constitutional argument that you can make to somebody that's lost a loved one and especially someone like you where the killer remains uh, at large. That being said, you know, there's a reason that we have a Fourth Amendment to begin with. And most of the things that are in the Constitution are designed to make it tougher to arrest people and not uh, and not easier. So, I I mean, there's and there's reasons behind all that. My concern really is a slippery slope situation yeah. that if we do yeah. it for murder, pretty soon we're going to be doing it for every crime. And I don't think that this should be that getting a baby's blood should be an alternative way um, to avoid getting a search warrant. I, I like the warrant process. I like showing probable cause. And most courts don't even require much in the way of probable cause for a search you know, warrant. But I see what you're saying, though, Jay. Are you familiar at all with the Green River Killer? Yeah, we just did a segment on that about uh, about two weeks ago. Okay, so they, they caught that guy from uh, paint, paint evidence that was left on one of the victims. And they traced it back to the, the truck plant that he worked at. And that's how they finally brought him to justice. And and that was, you know, I I don't know what the count was, 30 women or something? Yeah, no, no, it was, it was, it was brutal. And by the way, I'm all for forensic investigations and things of that nature. I'm just not sure, not for using babies' blood to catch their yeah, parents in crime. Jay, thanks, uh, thanks for the call. I appreciate the charging station perspective and you uh, sharing your story. I'm sorry that your family had to go through that. That's all right. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Uh, 800-848-9222. See, someone like that I'm not going to preach to because uh, they've certainly been through uh, been through a great deal. And now in otherworldly news, well, I was someone that was really, um, really looking forward to the space launch yesterday to Artemis. Not to Artemis, but of Artemis to the moon. 
And it's really uh, a disappointment that it didn't end up coming to fruition. There was some concern about the weather, and evidently it was not the weather which NASA said did Artemis 1 in. It was instead a technical glitch. I want to say that uh, understand that scrubs are just a part of this program. Uh, on the f- space flight that I participated in, uh, Hoot Gibson, the commander, 36 and a half years ago, we scrubbed four times on the path. It was the better part of a month. Uh, and looking back, had we, uh, after the fifth try, got off to a perfect uh, mission, uh, it would have not been a good day had we launched on any one of those four scrubs. So when you're dealing in a high-risk business and space flight is risky, uh, that's what you do. You buy down that risk, you make it as safe as possible, and, of course, that is the whole reason for this test flight, to stress it and to test it to make sure it's as safe as possible when Artemis II, when we put humans in the spacecraft. Yeah, you had thousands of people who had come from all over the place to pack beaches, roadsides, rooftops, waterways. Some even camped out overnight in the hopes of seeing NASA's giant new moon rocket launch for the first time. It, so it is disappointing Um The fact that they said it was too early to guess whether it might be able to launch on Friday is also somewhat disappointing. But this is what happens, right? This is the game we're in, right? Uh, As uh, Kirk said, risk is our business, right? It's It's what space travel is all about. So mission managers are going to meet today to discuss their next steps. Fingers crossed here. Um, So this is a big deal. Although there will be no astronauts on this test flight, this rocket is what NASA calls the Space Launch System. It's to usher in a new era of human exploration, including sending the first woman and the first person of color to the surface of the moon. So we'll see where that goes. The first mission without astronauts is to be a weeks-long flight around the moon to test both the rocket and the Orion crew capsule where astronauts will sit on future missions. In particular, NASA wants to make sure that the heat shield on Orion can survive a fiery entry through Earth's atmosphere at 25,000 miles per hour. Uh, That's the speed of a spacecraft returning from the moon. So fingers crossed, we'll see see what happens. Hey, we're also keeping an eye on uh, what's going on with this Mar-a-Lago raid. And the investigation regarding the uh, the raid or the execution of a search warrant at President Trump's residence in Florida. And a lot of this seems to have to do with presidential records. Now, I read one of the most fascinating articles that I've read on this subject in a long time over the weekend. And it was written by somebody that spent a great deal of time researching this stuff and studying this stuff, and that's Ronald Schaefer. Ronald Schaefer is a former Wall Street Journal political features editor and the author of the book Breaking News All Over Again, and we have 
tracked him down. Ron, thanks so much for uh, coming on the radio with me. I know it's a tough hour. It is, but I'm happy to be here. I don't know whether to say good morning or good evening, but uh, I'm glad to be here. Neither do I. I'm still trying to figure that one out myself, Ronald. So uh, I know I learned from your article and some other commentary on this subject that the Presidential Records Act came about in uh, 1978. What exactly is the Presidential Act and where did it come from? Well, the uh, the Records Act basically, just to boil it down, says that when uh, you're president and you leave office, you have to ser- turn all your papers over to the National Archives. Uh, they don't belong to you anymore. They belong to the public. And uh, actually, Congress first passed something in 1974 uh, when uh, President Nixon left and he wanted to keep some uh, material dealing with Watergate. Uh, so they passed a law saying uh, you got to give that back. And then in 1978, they passed a law that says everybody has to give it back. And it didn't really take place uh, until uh, effect a president to Ronald Reagan. It took that long to go into effect. But meanwhile, Jimmy Carter voluntarily gave over all his records uh, when he left office. And ever since then, uh, you're supposed to turn everything over. So presidents before this act was passed in 1978, they, when they left office, they could do whatever they want with wanted, wanted with their papers. It was their property. It was it. It was. You know, it all began with uh, George Washington. Uh, he's our first president. He left in 1797. Uh, when he left, he took his papers with him. And as I wrote in my article, the federal agents never searched Mount Vernon. Uh, because they belong to Washington and and not to the government. And so he was really the first one to to have to handle uh, former documents. And, of course, his were really important since he was the first president. So he was going to build a a place to store them. But, unfortunately, he only lived two more years. Uh, You know, under his medical plan, he had this doctor who liked to bleed people. Mm. So he died in 1799. And he passed them along to a nephew uh, who uh, just happened to be a Supreme Court justice. And this uh, justice, he loaned him to Chief Justice John Marshall, who was writing a biography of George Washington. And Marshall stored it. I don't know where he stored it, but uh, the, uh, uh, the justice who lent them uh, wrote uh, later and said they were stored somewhere. They were extensively mutilated by rats and otherwise injured by damp. Mm. Uh, So right from the get-go, the papers were not handled very well, and fortunately, uh, they were saved. And you can actually go online today. uh, They're in the Library of Congress. And uh, if you want, uh, you know, read George Washington's papers. Well, the ones that the rats didn't get to, I guess. Yeah, well, the rats have theirs, and we get the rest. (laughs) Fair enough. So um, this this was done. Obviously, everybody I think is familiar with the Nixon situation, where there was a missing missing eighteen minutes of uh, an audio, um, you know, audio having to do with Watergate. But this applies the Presidential Records Act not just to papers like the ones that George Washington had, but to audio recordings that like the ones Nixon had, and I would imagine it applies to electronic records as well. Yeah, all that kind of thing. I mean, of course, back in Washington's day, they they never heard about classified documents. 
but it's anything that's uh, public. Now, it doesn't, it's not your, your private thing, something you sat on the desk or something like that. You can keep that. <clears throat> but anything that involved the, the public office. And, uh, uh, and it varied, you know, over the years. I mean, the second president, uh, John Adams, uh, he was a good record keeper, and he gave his stuff to his son, uh, John Quincy Adams, who also became president of the United States. And he kept good records, and they gave them to their heirs, and they kept them in a, a safe somewhere and then donated them to the Massachusetts Historical Society. And you can read all those today. Uh, but after that, it just it was all over the lot until 1978. So uh, going into the present day with this Trump investigation there appears to be a dispute again we don't know necessarily because we don't know all the details of what's in these documents but there appears to be a dispute in terms of what records president trump was permitted to have once he left office and which records were supposed to go to the national archives and apparently there was some ongoing discussions about this between the trump team and the national archives going back I think, all the way to January. Under the Presidential Records Act, though, would President Trump have been able to keep any of these records? Well, we don't know exactly what they have, but it's pretty clear he wouldn't be able to keep anything to do with uh, uh, nuclear weapons or any kind of classified information or whatever, whatever documents they are. Uh, and I guess they're sorting that out uh, out right now. There were some with uh, legal privileges that maybe he he could keep, but uh, we don't know. I mean, it's this has never come up before that uh, the president went home with all these uh, documents, at least not since they uh, they passed the law. And until the uh, the final outcome uh, happens, uh, it's all a guessing game right now. Now, let's say um, a president is playing um, is doodling, right, doodling on a napkin in in the uh, you know, while they're waiting for their lunch to be served. And they're just uh, they're just letting their mind wander. They're doodling or they're playing tic tac toe with one of the first children. Now, I mean, that's not I wouldn't think that's a presidential record that's worth preserving. How um, does the Presidential Records Act differentiate between a president doodling on a napkin versus a president um, sending a communication to a foreign leader, for instance? Well, I I don't think they wrote anything into the law that I know of about doodling. Uh, But who knows? I mean, this law in 78, actually one of the leaders in Congress was Dan Quayle, who was a uh, first-term congressman. So there may be some dueling stuff in there, but... uh, I, I don't think it gets down to that. I, as as a as a total amateur in this area, I would guess that you probably could keep your doodles uh, unless you had some nuclear secret of it. Uh, fair enough. By the way, what became of um, Chester A. Arthur, a, a, another New Yorker that uh, was elected president? What became of his presidential papers after he left office? Well. Now, Arthur had this had this crazy idea that journalists would pry into his affairs. Uh, and, of course, you know, we journalists would never do anything like that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so just before he died, you know, he, this was on his mind, apparently, in, in 1886. So he, he told his son, he said, to destroy all my presidential papers. 
Uh, and so the son got these three big garbage cans, and he burned up almost all of uh, Chester Arthur's papers. So I guess uh, I haven't really checked, but I, I guess we don't have that many of his papers because uh, he didn't want journalists uh, to uh, to look into it. Uh, the downside is that uh, they don't write about him very much anymore. I can't remember the last time I heard of Chester A. Arthur. You know, obviously, that's a um, that's a shame for history because it would be nice to have those, um, you know, have those records of the Arthur presidency, which was, you know, a pretty pivotal point in American history for a bunch of reasons. But I'm wondering, not that we're going to re re amend or um, revoke the Presidential Records Act. Is there something to be said for allowing presidents to make determinations for themselves about what becomes of their their papers. Maybe it could be argued that if there's a lot of correspondence uh, between Chester A. Arthur and his uh, his cabinet, for instance, where they're speaking to one another in writing in very um, in, in very crude terms, maybe it could be argued that there's more of an expectation of frankness. If you know that someone after you leave office is not going to be reviewing those writings, whereas someone like John Adams feels comfortable donating these records or that records, is there something to be said for allowing presidents to make these records their personal property? Well, speaking as a journalist, I I would rather not. I'd rather pry, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I bet you uh, would. And and as a Funny thing about the early ones, of course, as you mentioned, they were handwritten. Can you imagine uh, storing those kind of papers? But but actually, it's, it's fewer than now. That when Nixon finally turned his papers over, uh, there were 42 million pages of of documents. And uh, uh, so it, these days, you're talking about a tremendous amount of, you know, as you say, not just papers, but material and so forth. Mm. Although Nixon once estimated that uh, out of the 40 million pages or so that he that he turned over, uh, a president would only look like himself, would only have looked at about 200,000 pages uh, during his time as president. So a lot of these things, the, the, the president uh, who doesn't even really know what they are because he hasn't read sure. 40 million pages of documents and it's probably even more now. Uh, so it probably just comes down to, you know, uh, well, I guess in this case, boxes of documents uh, that uh, the presidents really are really that familiar with. There are, There's obviously a lot of discussion and a lot of debate about the current situation because anything involving President Trump ends up being very polarizing and politically charged. Jonathan Turley is a professor at George Washington University Law School. He was talking about the similarities between what what's alleged to have been done by the Trump folks and what was done with Hillary Clinton's records previously. Well, yeah, I, I, to me, those are apples and oranges. Uh, let me let me play for you this uh, this audio of uh, Jonathan Turley, and then sure. I want to I want you to explain how the presidential Re- presidential records act fits in with this. Uh, this is Jonathan Turley. 
All right, we don't have that ready, but uh, but yeah, explain how. Uh... I've, I've seen him on television. Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah, explain explain the why he might be a little off base. Well, I'm not an I'm not an expert on what happens with uh, Hillary Clinton's tape recordings, uh, but I know they were thoroughly uh, uh, examined and uh, debated uh, during the uh, the election, and uh, all I can say is that. Uh, the, the Trump papers definitely come under the the uh, presidential act. She, of course, was not president, although she wanted to be. Uh, so her her tapes were not uh, covered under this act because this act covers uh, only presidents and uh, vice presidents. So uh, she would not be covered I under see. the Presidential Records Act. As so, much as you would have liked to have been. But the right, the Presidential Records Act absolutely is is operative here. That absolutely plays a role in why President Trump should not have been permitted to store these records as he was storing them. Yeah, no question about it. And uh, normally this is just this is uh, just sort of a uh, uh, regular thing that happens when a president leaves office. It's not really a big deal. Uh, it's just pretty much automatic that it happens. Uh, so this this is, you know, I write about things now about history, and usually I base it on something that happened before, uh, but uh, except for, I guess, I guess Nixon would be the president when he, he tried to keep some things, uh, which at that time, of course, um, the law hadn't changed, so who knows, maybe uh, at that time he was he was okay until they changed the law. Uh, tell me, before we let you go, Mr. Schaefer, tell me about your book, Breaking News All Over Again. What's that about? Well, that's a collection of the articles I write from the Washington Post on the Retropolis column, which is about history. And usually what happens is just like this, when I see something in the news, uh, I find out, well, Something uh, probably happened like this before, hmm. and sure enough, almost always uh, something has. So I put together about 20 columns. I've got, uh, I've got when the vaccines came out, I wrote about Abigail Adams getting all her children uh, vaccinated for smallpox, which was really a big deal then because you actually, they gave you smallpox, so you would, no longer would get it. Uh, and her husband was away in Philadelphia messing with the Declaration of Independence at the time, so she was on her own. Uh, and then when Joe Biden campaigned from his basement, well, I wrote about Warren Harding campaigning from his porch in in, uh, in uh, Marion, Ohio. And uh, in fact, uh, regarding your earlier comments here, you know, his papers, uh, his when he died, uh, his wife tried to keep some of uh, his papers because uh, they might have been embarrassing to him. And uh, as we know now that. Uh, Long before Monica Lewinsky, he was uh, he was sleeping with one of his uh, secretaries in the White House mm. closets, and she later had a baby that she claimed was Harding's. And in 2015, a DNA confirmed that indeed it was Warren Harding's uh, child. So DNA came into play even with Warren Harding. And uh, the, the actually the the uh, article in my book that was the most read article of these columns uh, all over the Washington Post last year was about the vice president who who had an enslaved wife. He actually owned his wife. Uh, Which vice president was that? 
that was, you know, you you write these things and then you forget. Uh, yeah, well, forget uh, that, that's for us to I, read them. Yeah, well, I, I, that I am going to um, uh, I'm going to look that one up. Apparently, apparently. Um, the it was the wife of Richard Mentor Johnson, who I yeah, Richard Ment- Mentor Johnson, Julia Chen, uh, and she he was a Kentucky senator, and he became the vice president for President uh, uh, Martin Van Buren. Wow. Yeah, and, uh, apparently he was the his only had died, so he actually owned his wife, and he had two daughters, and he gave them uh, uh, his name. Uh, she had died by the time he was uh, elected, but there was a backlash because of his marriage, mm-hmm. and Congress uh, did not approve the uh, his elections. Uh, I mean, the uh, so finally uh, he the Senate did approve it, uh, but uh, it remained a controversy even while he was vice president. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's... The kind of stories I write there. The things that happened uh, now, but something happened before. That, no, that is uh, wild. Apparently the only vice president elected by the U.S. Senate under the provisions of the 12th Amendment as well, which I would have uh, yeah. not known. Uh, well, Ronald Schaefer, I want to thank you very much for the time this morning. I hope we could chat again soon. I hope so. And I say Willie Mays deserves whatever he can get. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm going to link uh, to this piece that was in the Washington Post on uh, my Facebook page, if you want to read it. It was really interesting if you're into presidential history or the history of the Presidential Records Act. If you want to read it, you can just go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll tell you something I don't remember ever encountering or hearing about, at least not on a wide-scale basis, until about, I want to say, two years ago. Maybe, man, no, before that. I'll say four years ago. That is, divorced couples, and even couples that were never married but have split up, Divorced couples or split-up couples sharing custody of a pet. And yet, that is now all the rage. Not only have I witnessed this in my, my own life, in my own circle of friends and acquaintances, it's being widely reported that this is now one of the more common things that couples negotiate when they split up. There was a, an article in, um, I don't know what uh, publication it is. It's called Stuff.co, the life and style section. 
by uh, I'll give at least the reporter credit if I can't find the uh, the publication. Amberly Jack is the reporter, and it's all about chronicling and profiling the ex couples who share custody of their pets. And she writes about the day that she met the first time she met her husband's ex. She was standing at the front door with an 18-year-old chihuahua, Indy, in one arm, and a bag filled with food, medication, and favorite toys in the other. They met so that she could hand the dog over for her designated weekend at her mother's house. The two of them, her husband and his ex-wife, had been sharing custody of Indy since they split. And they continued until this dog died when she had to be put down. And he, the husband and his ex, both went to that final visit and they held the dog as she died. When it came to the bill afterwards, costs split evenly down the middle. As part of their divorce agreement, a dog custody arrangement was one that they had in place. I don't remember hearing about this before a few years ago. I don't know about you, but it seems like the idea of shared custody of pets among divorced couples is now getting increasingly common. I don't think it's anywhere near as common as sharing custody of children, but it looks like it is now one of the common things that uh, divorced couples argue about. I'm curious if you are a pet owner, and you've been divorced, how you handled this situation? How do you handle custody of a pet that you and your wife or you and your husband acquired together? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I know one couple, um, I know one woman, she was married to a woman, and they, they, Not that that matters, really, for the purposes of this story. But they got a dog together, right? Now she's married to a man. And every other weekend, this one dog, the one that she got with her ex-wife, goes to the ex-wife's house. And she has another dog with her current husband. So she, on one half the time, they have two dogs. The other half of the time, just the one. And I, I think that's an interesting situation for a dog to to grow up in. Because on the one hand, you have sort of a dog that you're interacting with. On the other hand, you're the only dog. Similar to, I guess, if you, in my case, my parents were divorced. And so I would go to my dad's every other weekend and I, I would have siblings. And then the other time, the, the rest of the time, I'd be at my mother's, more or less like an only child. But I, I'm curious how you've observed these dog custody arrangements. What makes them work well? What makes them work not so well? What are the key sticking points? And what did you do in your own relationship if you had a pet that you had acquired with your ex? 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. Divorce coach Kelly Sutton says that pet custody is a common issue that arises when relationships dissolve. Now, I, I would imagine... It is. That's why I'm surprised that I haven't heard about custody disputes of pets until recently. I don't remember hearing anything about this 
20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And 25 years ago, 30 years ago, divorcing was all the rage. Every couple divorced 30 years ago. You weren't even married if you didn't get divorced. And sharing time with the family animals is a common solution, especially when children are involved. She, uh, This divorce coach, Kelly Sutton, even has her own arrangement with her ex-partner and their dog. So in their case, despite splitting 10 years ago, the pair share expenses. He'll take the dog when Sutton travels or when he has the children. And it's a situation that works really well for their family. And Sutton says her ex-partner will be part of the decision-making process when it comes to end-of-life care. See, God, I hope my wife and I obviously never get divorced, but my wife had our three cats prior to us getting married and certainly prior to us being in a relationship with one another. So if we ever did get divorced, she would get all three of those cats. Absolutely. No questions asked. And I would not, I don't believe, be expected to pay cat support or anything of that nature. But what did you do if you've been through a divorce and there were pets involved? Is it the same as a child? I could see it being and I could see it not being. What do you think? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Indiana. Hello, Marianne. Hello, Frank. Um, I cannot get custody of my pet, but I did have a battle uh, over uh, – it was a pet. It's my horse. I had, I was uh, – uh, I'm a horse equestrian rider, and um, – we had a battle over who gets the horse, and I I won the battle of uh, getting my horse back up and from my second divorce. Well, so I don't understand. I thought you said uh, you did not get custody of your 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 pet. Well, I mean, we didn't share. We didn't share it. I mean, I had to get it. Oh, we I see. All right. So you you had sole you, you had sole custody. Correct. And now, was your ex-husband, did he have to then foot the bill for any horse-related expenses afterwards, or did you shoulder all those no, yourself? No, it's my horse. That was my horse. That's not his. Did you have the and horse? He wanted to claim it. Did you have the horse prior to having the husband? No. Oh, no. So you this was a horse that you guys acquired together. I bought it. And, yes. and then what was the decide? Did did you guys have to go to a judge, or how did you determine? Yes, we had to go to a judge in our divorce. And the judge and determined that you should get the one. horse. Yes, and it was a long. I mean, it was a long decision too. Oh, I can imagine. Does the at your ex husband get to still see the horse at all? No, well, he didn't get. To, you, I was afraid he was going to steal it away from me. Ugh. Yeah, I can imagine. But I, I would imagine that's very, I mean, I don't know how attached he was to the horse, but I would imagine. Oh, that, yes, it's like our children. I mean, we didn't have children. I mean, horses are uh, like, a, we had like, a, it was, uh, we rodeoed and did that stuff. You know, we did it. It was like a business. Yeah, I would imagine that was very, again, I don't know the circumstances of your divorce, but I would imagine that was a very emotionally uh, trying thing for him to be so attached to a horse and then not to be even able to see it at all. Especially when I came out and got it. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I had to bring a sheriff with me. Mm. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad it worked out for your benefit, though. Uh, is the horse like Barney Fife. <laughs> 
is, but we, yeah, I did get the horse back and everything. Is the horse fine. still alive? No, I had the horse. Uh, she lived to 35. All right. Well, I'm glad. Uh, I had her since she was one year old. Wow. So you had uh, over three decades. That's something. Uh, Marianne, thank you for sharing that. Appreciate that. See, in the case like that, maybe a horse is different than a dog or a cat or a gerbil or a hamster or a bird. But because of the uh, upkeep involved in a horse and the space that's necessary for a horse. But I feel bad. Again, I don't know what went on in their marriage, but I feel bad for that guy that he doesn't get to see that horse anymore. Just as I would feel bad for him if he didn't get to see his child anymore. Again, I recognize that animals are not children, but to some extent they are. And um, they may not be human children, but you can get attached, especially if you have no children. You can get attached to an animal, a pet, very easily. And I I think shared custody, obviously I can understand why maybe you don't want this person in your life forever. But I think shared custody is probably a thing that makes sense for a lot of couples. But as Marianne said, and I didn't take that into account, how do you know someone's not going to steal your turtle or steal a pet if you allow them visitation to it? It's really, it's very, very difficult. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Ernie is in Westchester. Hello, Ernie. Hey. Hey. Hey, Frank. You know, well, another thing that has to be considered is if, if you have the uh, the arrangements where you can keep the uh, pet because a lot of pets, uh, they don't uh, – you move somewhere, you, you may not be able to keep them. You may – there may be uh, rules like in some condominiums and apartments. You may not be able to keep them. I had uh, two over the span that my wife uh, was, uh, she came back, and all this goes back 15, 20 years. But there was two dogs. It was uh, April and Nikki. One was a, uh, a uh, you know, a mutt, and the other one was a pug. And you know, we had a house with a backyard, nice big backyard, and I don't think either of those dogs would have given up their backyard. <laughs> well, I can understand that, but in a case where one party moves to a condo or an apartment like the one you're describing, which you're not able to have pets, then that makes the decision a lot easier about who gets to get the pet, right? Yep, 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 and uh, and then... You know, they have to get visitation and you call, can I come over and see April? Can I come over and see Nikki? But it also helps because it can help in the uh, visits and something has to be done. So who knows? Sometimes pets can bring people back together, too. That's another thing. Yeah, and thanks for the call, Ernie. I I think I'm sure that's true, but I think most of the time, if you've made the decision to get divorced, I don't think seeing a dog or a cat that you shared with your ex-wife or your ex-husband, I don't think that's going to be the magic bullet that puts the two of you back together. I think you've probably made your determination that you're going your separate ways for reasons beyond, oh, we both like little Fluffy, especially because, unfortunately... Pets don't usually, especially if we're talking dogs or cats here, don't live that long. So I don't think you'd get together 
just for the duration of a pet's life and be rekindled. But stranger things have happened, right? What is it they say? The heart wants what it wants. Open lines if you want to comment, 800-848-9222. I am curious if you've ever had one of these successful pet custody arrangements and how it worked out for you and what the key to making it work was. 800-848-9222. And um, if you want to find me on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And you can even uh, join our uh, Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. So far, uh, Ronald Schaefer getting pretty good reviews so far about uh, that, uh, especially um, that Richard Mentor Johnson fact. That was really interesting. Bill is in Morristown. Hello, Bill. Frank, how are you? I'm well. I actually have a friend named Bill that used to live in Morris Plains, but he moved out of there. He moved to Randolph, I believe. I, I amazingly, I'm from Randolph. How do you? Oh, like you're that? kidding! And so it's like you, Morristown, Mor- Morristown, and 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 Randolph traded bills. Exactly, uh, Mount Freedom uh, is the section I lived in in Randolph. Uh, I couldn't tell you where he lives, but uh, but he seems to like it out there, though. No, it's nice. So I've got an amazing story, and I promise you this is true. So I got divorced in uh, t- uh, December of '04. I uh, had about a, a, a three-year-old Shih Tzu, and. Uh, the judge in Mars County uh, awarded joint custody. I had to turn the dog over to my ex on a Friday night on Route 46 at the Mountain Lakes Diner, and I knew that I would never see the dog again. I didn't know it, but I knew it. She never showed up. The next day, a Saturday, I found a lawyer at the Starbucks in Denville. I saw a guy. I said, you got to help me. He wrote up a draft. He went to the judge Monday morning in Marstown. The judge dismissed it. I saw my ex about a year and a half later. She said, you're lucky you did that because I was going to give that dog to the pound as soon as I got it. I swear to God, that's a true story. And that dog lived to be 19. Oh, wow. It it helped my mother and father. They loved it. Uh, Even my grandkids, but they called it their grand dog. They treated it like like one of their grandkids. So she was going to send this dog to the pound just to spite you? Yes, in, oh. in, in Staten Island. I remember it well. She, her aunt lived in Staten Island. She said I was bringing it <laughs> with my aunt the next day. Uh, yes, just despite me, yeah, believe it or not. Well, that's crazy. And that's obviously no reflection on the people of Staten Island at all. <laughs> no, of course. No, and that's why I thought you'd even appreciate the story even more, yes. Yeah, and, and ironically, my friend Bill, who was in the Morristown, Morris Plains area and is now in Randolph, he is from Staten Island originally. So there's all sorts of synergy between you and Bill there. Uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Uh, Bill, uh, thank you very much for that. Good luck. I'm glad that uh, that you, story Frank. had a happy ending. That could have gone another way. That's for sure. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, seven open lines. Oh, boy. I uh, have a feeling we're in store for something here. But Monty is in Queens. Hello, Monty. Well, so I knew this young lady. She she divorced her spouse and she married the dog. It was very very unusual. How old was the dog? It was six years old. So the dog was a minor, and they got somebody to perform that ceremony. Well, it was rather unusual. I said, and uh, there you have it. What state was this in, Monty? It was right here in New York. You're kidding me. Well, now, was yeah. it just a civil ceremony or was there a religious component? 
I don't believe the dog was religious, no. Well, hey, I mean, if you spell dog backwards, we see right away what that gets you. Monty, uh, you're, you're right. Everything you've been saying about this state going to the dogs for so many years seems to be true, if that's the case. Um, I Imagine that. Imagine divorce being get, left by someone who leaves you for a dog. Man, not only are you violating all sorts of bestiality statutes— but it's, uh, I guess, wait, if you count the dog's age as being in dog years, maybe he's not a minor. But still, that's wild. Unbelievable. Jeffrey is in Queens. Hello, Jeffrey. Frank, how are you, sir? Great. Got a happy ending to a story that, that had to go 180 at the last second. Um, it was looking tragic for me when my spouse and I split up in 1990. And she was going to get the cat, and I was, you know, you know for whatever reason, I, I agreed that she should have the cat. Maybe it was two cats. And um, she had fallen in love with her. We separated amicably, and she was down at marrying uh, one a mutual friend. So she had the, you know, she had a good luck. Anyway, she was going to get the cats. At the last minute, she came to pick them up. At the moment of truth, she said, I could have the cats. Oh. Unbelievable. Happy ending. Why did she change her mind like that? I don't know. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't go into it. I guess maybe, maybe you know. I, years later, I, for years, I guess maybe because she had the the man and I had no one, and you know, she, she was looking at the future elsewhere. I, I don't know, Frank. I don't know, but it was a, an amazing ending to what well, was going to be a tragic situation for me. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to hear that, Jeffrey. Thank you. I am interested, though. So so far, we've heard from a woman that was going to steal her ex-husband's dog and bring him to the pound. We've heard um, from Monty a story of a woman that got divorced and then married a dog in a civil ceremony. We've heard uh, a story of uh, a custody battle over a horse, which ended in one party getting it. But aside from the anecdotal example of the couple that I know of the, you know, woman that was married to a woman and then married a man and shares custody of one of her dogs with her ex-wife, we haven't heard any successful shared custody stories of pets, which I must say I'm surprised by. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Carol, who doesn't want anybody to have her number in New Jersey, is uh, calling in. Hello, Carol. Oh, I, I didn't say that. I I was uh, surprised to be uh, so interesting to yep. so many people. Believe me, <laughs> Carol, no one's more surprised than me that you're interesting. <laughs> um, I had uh, two cats. They were pedigree cats, so they were a bit spoiled, and, and those, those were my pets. And then um, I wound up on a whim getting a little Shih Tzu, and he wound up becoming my parents' pet. They fell all over him. They loved him and because he didn't get along with my cat. The cats chased after him. They went after him. They didn't like him. You know, that's the way it is, cats and dogs. Um, but my parents, they, they treated that dog like he was their child <laughs> really <laughs> oh i can imagine i can imagine all right carol thank you very much appreciate that uh 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-9222 hey i forgot to mention this yesterday but on friday 
My wife and I saw a motion picture, and I am going to give you my review of it after the $1,000 uh, minute, which is, uh, which is coming up shortly. Now, uh, oh, by the way, I, uh, okay, no, no, we'll put a pin in that. We'll save that one for tomorrow. I um, will tell you that uh, I'm very excited at uh, who is coming on this program on this coming Friday. We are going to have back Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda, who is an American that lives in Russia. And that was one of the most thought-provoking conversations that we've had on this program. And one of the ones that we got the most amount of response to. He's agreed to come back on this Friday. Now that we have the six-month anniversary of the Ukraine war, now that we're seeing all sorts of reports of different uh, different uh, criticism within Russia about the war. I'm curious to get Mark's take about uh, where we go from here in terms of this war and what what how rank and file Russians are feeling about it. All right. Uh, you can also email me anytime you like at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, seeing no further comment on the dog custody issue, I will invite you to be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you're the seventh caller right now, you will get an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, then you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. Kenneth, did we ever follow up with that lady to make sure she got her $100 who uh, called in on Friday? Because I was getting a lot of questions about that over the weekend. To make sure she got her money. Um, so I don't know how, but we don't have her information. So if she wants to call back and give that. How do we not have information? Didn't we take I it really when... don't know. Because I checked my emails. I can't find her name anywhere. But, Kenneth, this is like the second time this has happened in, in this, within this a week. The, isn't that the same woman? This is the same woman that called the last week about it. Right, no, but so the woman called friday about not getting her hundred dollars no right? the, the guy that called yesterday that he he um won before i was even before i even worked here well no no that's a third guy right so we have the guy that was given the opportunity to play the game a second time right and he he didn't get to go he didn't get to go in oh right right and then and then um this woman who i think called herself Alyssa, we we don't have her contact information right well when she when she called me like to not come on the air once before, but then she refused to give me her real name, so I couldn't, I couldn't look up what her info was. Wow! But how we had her address to send her a hat, though, right? I, I, I guess so. Yeah, I couldn't find it in my emails to Jake, which is usually how well, we do is, this. So I don't know. We're really we're batting a thousand this week as a as a show staff so far. Okay. Um. Well, yeah. So if Alyssa or whatever name she goes by wants to call back, we will. Uh, Make sure that you have your $100 if you didn't receive it yet. Or reach out to me and I'll, I'll Venmo you, as I promised. All right, we'll do the $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hi.
Well, hopefully, if your trivia chops are up to snuff, you will be able to afford a mockingbird or a diamond ring. Well, maybe not a diamond ring, but you'll be able to pay uh, pay some bills. If you are able to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Ah, yes, thank you, Chris Libertini. I know you need me to record some stuff for you. I'm hoping to do that today, and uh, we'll get you what you need. All right, uh, let us meet uh, today's contestant, Tom in New Jersey. Hello, Tom. Hello, Frank. How are you been, buddy? I mean, great. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for playing the game. Mm-hmm. That's uh, it's all. It's always fun. All right. So you you're familiar with the game, obviously, right? Oh yeah, we've but we've gone through this before. Oh boy. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's get started. <clears throat> How many states are there in the United States of America? Fifty. Name a song that was recorded by Frank Sinatra. Uh, Fly me to the moon. What city is the Eiffel Tower in? Paris. What billionaire is the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX? Elon Musk. What New Mexico city was reportedly the site of a flying saucer crash in 1947? Roswell. What is the name of Dorothy's dog in The Wizard of Oz? Toto. What what British prince is the Duke of Cambridge? I'll guess Prince Harry. Ah, I'm sorry, you're doing so well. Um, it was it's his brother. Remember, when in doubt, the answer is always William. It's Prince William. Prince William. Right. Um, all right, you did well though, Tom. I'm going to uh, I'm going to put you on hold uh, now. Reiterate your contact information to Kenneth multiple times because he doesn't have the best track record in keeping records. He keeps records the way Donald Trump keeps records. He just, he just, we don't know where they go, but he's not bound by the Telephone Talent Coordinator Records Act, uh, which mandates that they get turned over to the radio archives. So there you have it. All right, uh, but uh, a, a valiant effort nonetheless, none, nonetheless, and uh, appreciate Kenneth being a, uh, a sport. By the way, uh, I will tell you one last time, two, two quick reminders, two quick reminders if you'll permit me. One, um, we're doing this Tunnel to Towers race in New York. I really am looking forward to it next month. I am a big believer in the Tunnel to Towers Foundation they do incredible, incredible work for the families of fallen servicemen, for the families of fallen police officers, and for um, a lot of other groups as well. And we're trying to raise as much money as we can in order to uh, provide some uh, more mortgage-free homes to the family members of fallen servicemen. I can't think of a more worthy cause. So if you want to help my efforts in raising money for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, you can go to the website walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. Walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. You can click on my photo. 
to uh, donate to my team. Walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. All right. Uh, The other reminder that I will remind you for the last time is that if you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to check out the most recent edition of the Racket Report in which Michelle McPhee and I talk about the life and crimes, not to mention the murder, of James Whitey Bulger. James Whitey Bulger, one of the most notorious criminals in history and somebody that was working the entire time with the federal government, amazingly enough. And uh, I spoke with Michelle McPhee, who's been an Emmy-nominated journalist, a terrific screenwriter, a terrific radio talk show hostess back in the day. And she talked about some of the federal circles that Whitey Bulger ran in and uh, his relationship with John Connolly. Now, remember, as you listen to what Michelle says here, John Connolly actually went to prison for aiding Whitey Bulger. Listen to this. This is a guy who's been running around in federal circles for years, decades. But when we know for sure he made this deadly alliance with, uh, you know, somebody who grew up with John Connolly in the South Boston Project, that was in the 1980s. And it didn't become public until, of course, the 1990s. But I think that people will argue it goes back all the way to the 70s at the height of his mob power. So if you want to listen to that, uh, you can go to uh, just search The Racket Report with Frank Morano on any podcast app, and you can uh, subscribe to it and listen to the most recent edition or, uh, you know, iTunes, Google Podcasts, whatever. And uh, we always like for you to uh, leave a nice review. If you leave a nice review, a five-star review, along with a nice compliment, uh, you can help other people discover the podcast as well. We're working on something very big for this week that uh, should hopefully be posted on Thursday. That's not official yet, so... You know, don't hold me to Thursday, but we're working on something very big that I think you're going to like. Now, Friday evening, I have a standing offer. There's this group of friends that I used to get together with every Friday evening. But now that I work nights, Friday evening and Saturday evening are the only nights that my wife and I really get to spend together. So where we get to go to bed at close to the same time and do something together. So a lot of times I don't end up going to my friends on Friday. I'll end up spending the night with my wife. Either we'll go out, maybe we'll go out to dinner if we can get somebody to babysit, or we'll do something home. And I'll be honest with you, by the time Friday rolls around, I'm so spent from the sleep deficit that you build up throughout the week that it's really difficult at times for me to work up the energy to go out anywhere on a Friday night. So... My wife and I opted to watch a motion picture on Friday evening, and the motion picture we chose to watch was Rifkin's Festival. Have you heard of Rifkin's Festival? Well, Rifkin's Festival is the most recent Woody Allen picture. He's not in it, but he did write and direct it. It was um, it was four ninety five. We paid for this. I have not boycotted Woody Allen's films. I'm still watching Woody Allen's films. I have made the decision that I am not making any separation between um, an artist's work and anything that goes on in their personal life. I am evaluating the work, be it a TV show, a radio show, a movie, a play, a piece of music. I'm evaluating that on its own. 
and it's not for me to judge whatever else goes on. And we did this whole discussion before, but just reiterating it, if you're shocked and need to pick yourself off the floor, I can't believe you watched the Woody Allen picture. Yes, I watched the Woody Allen picture. So I really enjoyed this picture. It was a collaboration, a co-production of Italian filmmakers, Spanish filmmakers, and American filmmakers. And it stars Wallace Shawn. Wallace Shawn, uh, you may not know the name, but you've definitely seen him before a hundred times. He is one of the voices in Toy Story. He was on The Cosby Show. He played the teacher in um, Clueless. He was on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I believe, as the Grand Nagus. He is, he's got... He's got one of those iconic voices, you know, almost kind of Gilbert Godfrey-esque, kind of. Uh, he was in The Princess Bride. He's short, you know, kind of, I don't like to use the, I don't want to sound like I'm speaking negatively about him because whatever he's doing is working for him. But he's kind of got a nerdy look to him. And the only reason I describe it that way is because it does sort of fit in with the plot of this picture. And we watched the trailer and the trailer looked good. My only complaint with the trailer was I thought maybe it gave a little too much away, which I don't love when it gives a little too much away. But my wife said after we watched the trailer, my problem with this picture is, is before we even started watching it, before we spent the four ninety five, she said, my problem with this picture is that I don't believe that those two are married because she, his wife, is way too hot to be married to him. And um, I said, you realize that's what people say about us, honey. And uh, she didn't think that was true. But in the film, the Woody Allen picture, she, uh, his wife, Wallace Shawn's wife, is Gina Gershon, who is phenomenal in this picture. Christoph Waltz is in it. And um, Steve Gutenberg is in it in a supporting role as well. And essentially, it's about this sn- snobby, elderly film critic from New York Rifkin, that's the guy that Wallace Shawn plays. And he's telling his therapist about the recent developments in his life. And in this recent adventure that he's describing, he's accompanying his much younger wife to a film festival in San Sebastian. And he's a little jealous of the wife's relationship with the filmmaker. I um, I think my wife and I were both on the same page with this picture. We really liked it. I would even say I I don't want to say I loved it because I didn't. We both really liked it. It was funny. It was well made. The acting was great. The story was pretty good. And then the the ending was non-existent. The ending was totally anticlimactic. And both of us were left pretty unsatisfied by the ending. And I know a lot of Woody's pictures do that where they kind of just leave you hanging. I feel like this is one of the worst examples of a a film that just ended. They said, all right, we're done. And they didn't bother to put a period at the end of the sentence, right? But um, I think it's worth seeing. Is it worth spending four ninety five for? That I can't answer. I was really disappointed by the ending. That's what kind of kills me. If anyone else has seen it and has a different interpretation of the ending let me know but what i did like about this if you're an old school cinema guy they have all sorts of great scenes oh richard kind is in it in a smaller role i forgot to mention him richard kind but um they have all sorts of great scenes which pay tribute to classic cinema 
there's um, one scene that's sort of a tribute to Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, another scene that's a tribute to Citizen Kane. It's really a, a it's, you could tell it's sort of Woody's love letter to a lot of filmmakers that he really admires. And um, the story is very good. The acting is great. And it's well made. There's great music, great soundtrack. Where it really falls flat is, is the ending. So there's that. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right, Big Frank, and I just want to let you know that earlier tonight I called into the engine room and told them that uh, Tom Lyko sounded like he was calling from a phone boot in the uh, Hokey Finokies. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, it improved after that phone call. It it did improve. Yes, it did improve very much. He's, he's a fascinating character because we all like talk radio. And, folks, break open the saddlebags for uh, Tunnels to Towers and mark off Frank's name, of course, you know, so you, he gets the credit for that. Thank and before you. I get to the meat and potatoes, I just want two little things, one for you and one for the audience. We call it the $1,000 question, and, of course, I wish Frank would give me the answers and I'd split them 50-50. He ain't going to do it, obviously. But um, remember, you're also playing beat the clock. So if you could keep it down to a one-word answer, you're, you know, you're banking a lot of extra time there near the end. You keep coming up with all these big words and this stuff. It doesn't work. One-word answer, if you can do it, do well, it. Well, no, but I will tell you, Tom, who um, – I think it was Tom. Yeah, Tom, who did the contest today, he was on pace to get all 60. Had he – I mean, all 10. Had he said William instead of Harry, he would have been in a position to answer all 10 questions. Yeah, no, he was moving right along. That's how you win the game. Right. But who knows if he would have fumbled the ball on the one-yard line on the 10th question or the ninth question. We don't know that because we'll never know that. But also for you, for your podcast, um, your, whatever you want to call it, that type of podcast, um, you should use it, this guy. You can't bring him in there as a guest because obviously he's passed away a long time ago. But he has something in common with everybody in this audience. He was fascinated by talk radio, and that was Joey Gallo from Red Hook fame, and he loved talk radio. He'd actually go up to WMCA. Bob Grant would talk about that, and uh, that would be an interesting story. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. Obviously, we can't do that, but I am friendly with uh, Joey Gallo's former son-in-law, and uh, I am overdue for a sit-down with him. So I may bring uh, his former son-in-law in studio for a sit-down on a wide variety of issues. And Joey Gallo's brother, uh, Kid Blast, is the oldest wise guy that is still on the street, active, you know, on the street. I think he's 90 right now, and he's not in prison right now. He's out on the street. And if you ever spend time in Little Italy, you may run into him. But, uh, Frank, uh, do you think you should be saying that on the radio? But anyway, getting back to Joey Gallo. Now, when people owe Joey Gallo money, folks, right, Joey would invite him over to his house, and he'd have, like, a nice spread out there and everything, and he would walk him over toward the basement. He'd open the basement door, and he would tell the guy, hey, look down there. Not only did the guy pay up the money, he would pay up even extra, extra just to get out of there because – Joey had a lion down there. Now, from what I think, he didn't have no lion that you saw, like, in the zoo. So there's no way, you know, because the lion. I think he had, like, maybe a mountain lion or something down there. You know, not a regular, real big, big lion. That No way. Well, hey, fair, fair enough. If you ever see the film The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, that is supposedly based on Crazy Joe Gallo and his crew. Now, Obviously, they took a lot of artistic liberties, and that's a comedy, not a drama. But there's a lion in um, in there that's supposedly based on the lion that Joey Gallo had. By the way, 
Jerry Orbach is in the film version of The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. And Joey Gallo, even though they call him Crazy Joe Gallo, and we'll save this for a racket report. I don't, I don't want to say much more. But Joey Gallo was, he considered himself a very intelligent guy. And he didn't like that Jerry Orbach portrayed him as kind of a buffoon. And so what does he do? He reaches out to Jerry Orbach, asks to meet with him. Joey Gallo and Jerry Orbach, Jerry Orbach, of course, a famous actor from Law and Order, a bunch of other films and television show, uh, Dirty Dancing and so forth. Jerry Orbach and Joey Gallo become incredibly close friends, so much so that the night that Joey Gallo was assassinated in Little Italy, Jerry Orbach was with him. Isn't that wild? That this big gangster, basically the boss of what today is the Colombo crime family, was with one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time that uh, that he was killed. I mean, I think that's a wild story. And that all that relationship only came about because Joey Gallo was unhappy with the portrayal that Jerry Gorbach had in that picture. So, I, you know, Steve has, I don't know if he was just busting chops or if he was actually offering constructive suggestions. Steve has inspired me to uh, do a future Racket Report episode on the lifetimes of Joey Gallo. Maybe we'll do that next week. 800-848-9222. Patrick is in Huntington. Hello, Patrick. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, well, uh, Wallace Shawn, what a fantastic actor. Absolutely. I love every, everything he's been and You hit it on the head. Nobody knows the name until you see him. Then you say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. So one day I'm driving down 7th Ave, and I'm on a red light, like 16th Street. And there's Wallace Shawn <laughs> sitting, standing on the corner, right? He's about six feet from my window. And I look at him, and I go, Barney Miller. And he goes, nope. And then he walks across the, the crosswalk. <laughs> Funny story. And then about two months later, I see him, and he's in a restaurant, and I just looked at him. He, I gave him a little nod, and he gave me a little smile, and that was it. But the great actor, Wallace Shawn. Yeah, and, and the word is yeah. inconceivable is his, his, his good line. From, That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, hey, if you like Wallace Shawn, I think you would like this picture. It's worth seeing. It's worth spending the four ninety five if you're a fan. Rifkin's Festival is the name of it. Rifkin. Okay. R I V E N. R I F K I N, like Joel Rifkin, the serial oh, killer. I got you. Yeah. But uh, I'll have to say, I'm not a fan of uh, Mr. Uh, Woody. Ah, so maybe you skip it then. Uh, it is. It is a great oh, no, performance I'll, I'll by watch him. It on, you know, but I'll watch it just for the movies and just. Put that other thing aside. Like yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, again, Woody's not even in it, so you could forget about the fact that it's a Woody exactly. picture if you want. Patrick, thanks for the call. Hey, we'll do um, 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. 800-848-9222 if you want to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. By the way, there's two, there's two. I have to share this comment with you. I know we already did the mail, but this is quite a good tweet. What Roman Polanski film did you watch after the Woody Allen one? Will you be on Anthony Weiner's show this weekend? <laughs> starting to wonder, Frank. Starting to wonder. All right. There you have it. All right. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.
Side of Midnight by Stevie G and Lesbian Dance Theory, uh, a song that is available on iTunes only for two dollars. Greatest investment you'll make all week. That's a promise. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to be heard for fifteen seconds, that's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. It is time for the other side of midnight. This is fifteen seconds of fame. Mike on Staten Island. Good morning, Frank. I'll tell you how I get myself ready after a long, hard week. Lunch at Dino and Son. I recommend the Willard Shakespeare Burger. <laughs> David in the Bronx. Ted DiBiase's alleged title reign should never count because he did not win the belt by pinfall submission or in a tournament. Thank you. E, e- Frank in Astoria. <laughs> Yes, Frank, with uh, four decommissioned and retired U.S. space shuttles, two misaligned space shuttles, and one experimental space shuttle. Why do you complain about the Artemis one not taking off? Frankie in Glendale. A shout-out to the late Charlie Finch in uh, Talk Radio Heaven. Rest in peace, man. Fred and Yonkers. Hey, Frank, when I got divorced... We got joint custody of the dog and the cat. The cat didn't mind it. The dog thought it was rough. <laughs> That's pretty good. Neil on Staten Island. Remember, Frank, there's no such thing as a bad boy except one that eats other people's Doritos. No, they were nachos. Roger in Massachusetts. Is there corporal punishment and teachers becoming the parent? Maybe the conduct and effort grade should be reinstituted along with the academic grade. And they should be factored into whether a child moves on to the next grade or gets held back for immaturity. 800-848-9222. Frank in Blue Mountains. Yeah, prediction. Uh, I love your show, Frank. Thanks for the call. Uh, prediction. Eliminate indexes and you eliminate market crashes. The Dow hits 29796 two, this week. Russ in Queens. Yes, Godfather 2. Frank Patangelo is talking to Al Pacino about Hyman Roth, a.k.a. Sid Rosenberg. See what he said. I know the picture well. Joe in Park Chester. Uh, Yeah, in honor of your... Ernie in Westchester, hello. Hi, so I went, had to go for a doctor's appointment up at Yale New Haven. So in the building on the way to the office, I uh, turned the corner on the, uh, in the hospital and I saw this fella that looked just like uh, uh, Fauci. And uh, I mean, exactly 
But uh, the only thing I confirmed, I think it was him because he was, you know, like a foot shorter than everybody else. All right, thank you, Ernie. We'll we'll li- leave it on that note. Uh, it was, you know, again, fifteen seconds. Fifteen seconds. Want to wish a happy birthday to billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Ninety-two years old today. Can you believe that? Ninety-two years old. All right. I'm going to be back tomorrow. We've got some exciting stuff planned for tomorrow. Hopefully, tomorrow will be the first day in which my wife and I are sharing a car. So wish uh, wish us luck, and hopefully we'll figure out the preset situation. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, at Frank Moreno. That's Frank Moreno, uh, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, that's about it for me. Frank Moreno, good day.